BFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. Well, here's what I know about the Pac 12 Conference USC is going to have a bye the week before the Pac 12 Conference title game in 2023. That's in football. Deion Sanders. He is going to have to walk across hot coals to start his season. He'll start his conference game after a tough non-conference schedule. His first conference game is at Oregon. His second game, home against USC. And Washington, how about the Huskies? They have a test in November that will either make or break their season. I'll tell you in this segment what I know about the Pac-12 conference schedule. Tomorrow it will be released officially, the full schedule tomorrow on the Pac-12 Network's 10 a.m. The conference says that they will let it out. I'm not sure they wanted uh, what I knew to go public, but it's not really my job to give the Pac-12 conference uh, what they need and what they want. Um, I'm here to tick them off mildly, make them a little uncomfortable, hold them accountable. And really, uh, you know, I say this all the time and I want to say this off the top of the show today. I'm here for you. I'm not here for the teams. I'm not here for the coaches. You know, I like the teams. I like the coaches. I like the conference uh, commissioner, George Kiyofkov. I think he's doing a good job or, you know, amid some tough circumstances uh, to be determined on his ultimate grade. But I'm here for you. I serve you, the listener. I serve you, the reader, at johnconzano.com. Whether you are listening or reading, I'm here for you. And so I'll tell you what I know about the Pac-12 conference uh, football schedule. I got a peek at it. I got a peek at most of it. Uh, you know, it wasn't like Watergate, like meeting somebody in a parking garage, exchanging manila envelopes, anything like that. But I got a good look at it yesterday. It was finalized over the weekend. I can tell you what I know, and we can kick this around a little bit. But what I know about the Pac-12 conference schedule is that uh, it wasn't unanimous. The athletic directors had three drafts that they had to choose from. Draft A, draft B, draft C. You have 12 ADs trying to agree on schedules, but there were three final drafts that were presented to them over the weekend, a source told me. The process gave every school a chance to vote for their preferred version of the schedule. Five points for your number one pick, three points for number two, one point for number three. This is not a complex system, but the A draft of the schedule won. It got the first place vote from eight of the 12 conference athletic directors, meaning 75% of this conference picked the schedule that we're going to see unveiled tomorrow. Uh, the B draft and the C draft each got 12.5% or two first place votes. So it's really interesting to me as I'm, you know, I'm mining right now trying to figure out, you know, USC and UCLA in particular, were they with the eight or were they worth the others? Now, I'll tell you, I think they kind of were with the others. But I got a lot of people today who wrote, read what I wrote uh, about the schedule. If you want to read it, you can go to johncanzano.com. But I'm going to outline some of it here on the show today. And and came away thinking that USC got kind of a break in their schedule because they have a week zero non-conference game against San Jose State. It's the only week zero game in the Pac-12 conference schedule that I saw. Now, that week zero game against San Jose State affords the Trojans the opportunity to have two bye weeks in the regular season. They'll take a break at week thir- week three, and then they'll take a break nine games later 
week 13, which happens to fall immediately in front of the conference title game. Now, this is not unusual. It happened five years ago for USC. They had the same thing. They had a, a week off in front of the title game. And maybe the thinking is, hey, if USC is a contender, they're going to have an extra week to prepare in front of the conference championship game. They'll be ready. They'll be rested. They'll be healthy. But I am also looking at their schedule and noting that they will be the only team in the Pac-12 conference that will play nine, count them, nine consecutive games without a break during the Pac-12 season and their non-conference slate. They aren't going to get a they aren't going to get a mulligan. They aren't going to get a breather until the week 13 bye week, where they will exhale, presumably, maybe in position to uh, compete for a conference championship. What else do I know? Uh, those of you who are into Oregon and Oregon State, a lot of you out there, the Civil War rivalry game will be played on Friday, November 24th. I know this. i got to look at it. It is the only Pac-12 game set for Black Friday. It's one of two Friday games that the Beavers are scheduled to play next season. They will also play Friday, September 29th at home against Utah. So two Friday games for the Beavers, one on the road at Autzen Stadium, one at home on September 29th against Utah. Colorado is the only team, other team in the conference that has two Friday games on the schedule. Thought that was interesting. I kind of think that Jonathan Smith and Oregon State may prefer to play those games. I Correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Jonathan Smith, if you're out there listening. But I kind of feel like they may like having that spotlight to themselves. They played well in those games. Uh, they get Utah at home on a Friday night. It should be a pretty electric atmosphere on September 29th in the newly renovated Research Stadium as the Beavers and Utah will play that game in September. Uh, what else do I know? Oregon and USC, circle November 11th, Saturday, November 11th on your calendar. The Ducks will host USC in Eugene on November 11th. That is week 11 if you are counting the schedule. I have already marked it on my calendar because it's the matchup I really wanted to see in the middle of last season. It lost some luster when Bo Nix went down, but I, that's the game I wanted. I wanted to see Oregon play USC. I thought for most of the season, Oregon was the most complete team, and then they kind of just fell apart down the stretch. And again, Oregon had a really tough November. If you look back and you go, okay, what happened to Oregon? You know, they had to play Washington. They had to play Utah. They had to play Oregon State. Bo Nix got hurt. They weren't at full strength. And I only bring this up because Washington this year, in 2023, has a very similar, if not tougher, November. Uh, when you look at Washington, the Huskies will play USC at USC on November 4th. They turn around a week later on November 11th, and they host Utah. Then they play at Oregon State the next week. Then they host Washington State the final week of November. So for the Huskies in November, it's at USC, it's home against Utah, it's at Oregon State, and it's home against Washington State in a no month of November that will seemingly make or break Kalen DeBoer's team. And I and I bring this up because, you know, we watched Oregon sputter down the stretch. Like, they were doing it, MacGyvering it with duct tape and bamboo and a straw and trying to put it together. Bo Nix in the pocket couldn't really move. And so I wonder if the Huskies here in this 2023 season with Michael Penix Jr. at quarterback will encounter some of that stuff because you're playing at USC, then you're hosting Utah, then you're playing Oregon State. Those three opponents that I just mentioned, combined record of 21-6 and six in the Pac-12 last season. 
So keep an eye on the Huskies in November. Speaking of November, week 11, November 11th, you heard me mention USC is going to play Oregon that week. You heard me mention that Utah is traveling to Washington that same week. What is the Pac-12 doing in week 11? Well, here's what I think is going on with the schedule that's going to come out tomorrow. I think the Pac-12 is hunting for some exposure in week 11. I think they're looking for the glow of the late season national spotlight. So I think what they're trying to do is they have recognized, look, USC, Oregon, Utah, Washington, some of the stronger teams, let's pit them head-to-head in week 11 and force the national television entities, ESPN, Fox, whoever is bidding on the Pac-12 games that week, to uh, put that game in the national spotlight, whichever is the better game. So keep an eye on Week 11. I think that's a smart play. Uh, Conversely, Colorado, I mentioned earlier, Deion Sanders, Coach Prime in his first season at Colorado, he's got a tough non-conference schedule. You know, if you're looking at opening with, uh, you know, TCU, playing Nebraska, uh, then all of a sudden Colorado, uh, you know, goes to, Uh, Oregon for its first Pac-12 game. So that's going to be a big deal with Coach Prime coaching in the Pac-12. His first conference game will be at Autzen Stadium on September 23rd. They will then turn around Colorado and face USC at home the following Saturday. So Colorado's season, so to speak, looks like this. I'm just going to reel it off. They're at TCU in Week 1. They're home against Nebraska in Week 2. They're home against Colorado State in Week 3. Then they go to Oregon, and then they have USC at home. That's the first five games for Deion Sanders. Conversely, Arizona State has done something a little different. In the Pac-12, I think, looking at Arizona State, maybe putting some sunshine on the Sun Devils, uh, Arizona State has three non-conference games, including Oklahoma State and Fresno State, at home to start the season. Then uh, Arizona State will play USC at home. They go to Cal in week five. They host Colorado in week six. And I only bring up six weeks of play for Arizona State because five of the first six games for Kenny Dillingham are home games. And the road game is at Cal. I mean, it's set up for Kenny Dillingham to probably get out of the shoots with some momentum, some enthusiasm, and maybe make some hay towards being bowl eligible in his first season as head coach. Uh, I want to know what jumped out at you as I talk about that. In the Pac-12 conference schedule coming out tomorrow, I want to know what your your takeaways are. Washington State will open Pac-12 play at home against Oregon State in week four. Um, Arizona will open at at Stanford that same week. Uh, Also, Cal will open uh, at Washington. And, uh, you know, nine-game conference schedule for the Pac-12, I'm told. And uh, what are your takeaways? 503-417-7575. Uh, guys in studio, what are, what are you, as I, as I say all this stuff, I'm geeking out on it today, but as I say all this stuff, what jumps out to you? Yeah, for me, it, it's all about Colorado. Like, I want to see how Colorado reacts. And you talked about the non-conference, and then they start off with the tough uh, first couple games. I think the Pac-12 really is... I don't know if they. I don't know that they think Colorado is going to be good, but they're going to be intriguing. So they're putting these mark, you know, high-profile games right at the start of the season, just in case the season does go bad. So I think the Pac-12 is really, you know, trying to be conscious of ratings and putting the best teams in the best positions. You also talk about USC getting the bye week at the end of the season. They obviously think they're going to be really good again, but for me, it's all about Colorado. Like I don't know how good they're going to be. I don't know what Deion Sanders is as a coach. 
but you know they do have the number three transfer portal transfer portal class according to 27 24/7 sports so is this going to be a USC situation in Lincoln Riley where they bring in a bunch of players from the transfer portal and they're really good right away or is it the same thing as last season where they struggle I, I'm just so intrigued by that so I think it's I think it's exciting that they put Colorado against Oregon in that week one game because that's going to be a very uh, highly watched game, just with Oregon being the brand they are and how Dion coming to Colorado. Yeah, and I think, it, look, if you're the schedule makers, you're looking at this going, hey, look, what are your assets? And, you know, they probably start by saying, hey, USC, Utah, Oregon, Oregon State, Washington, these are your, these are your contenders as we see it today. And they go, okay, these are assets. Uh, we try to create, uh, you know, good matchups between these teams. And, you know, Oregon State's got some interesting matchups, but Oregon State gets to skip USC in this rotation. They're not going to have USC on the schedule, uh, but they'll have Washington at home. They'll play at Oregon. They'll have Utah at home on a Friday. Uh, They'll have UCLA at home. Uh, They'll have Stanford at home. It'll be a decent home schedule for the Beavers. But then you start going, okay, what are the other assets? Well, Arizona State's interesting because it's got a new coach in Kenny Dillingham. And I think the conference scheduled two of the first three conference games at home for Arizona State really lines up with eight home games this year for Kenny Dillingham, eight of them. So he gets eight home games, including five of the first six at home. Maybe Arizona State gets off to a hot start. Maybe it gives you another team. It gives you uh, you know, a quality win for somebody else later in the season because you, you know Utah, Washington, and Oregon will not play Arizona State until like the second half of the schedule. Um, and then Colorado, as you brought up, is interesting because, you know, if you're thinking about enthusiasm, they tried to move the Arizona State-Colorado game into week zero. Couldn't get it done, couldn't get a waiver. So instead they're stuck with Colorado opening at TCU, then hosting Nebraska, then hosting Colorado State. Whether Colorado is 1-2, and 2-1, two, two and 0-3, oh and 3-0, and oh, whatever they are, I think there's going to be intrigue as the conference schedule starts and Colorado and Deion Sanders go to play that first game. So I think what the Pac-12 is trying to do here by scheduling Oregon in Week 4 for that first conference game is letting Colorado go on the road, uh, letting uh, ESPN or Fox or whoever wants to take that game go with them, and let's see what happens. Let's see how ready Colorado is to compete. And if they are ready, guess what? One week later they get USC at home. And I, I got to think that this, I mean, this schedule, it all feels made for entertainment, made for matchups, made for TV in my mind, uh, you know, as I look at that. Um, what else What else jumps out at you guys? Uh, you know, the Civil War game, I think on Black Friday, I always like. Love that. that. Yeah, lo- I love that, that it's on a Friday. Um, just a standalone game. Only Pac-12 game, like you said, you know, really emphasize the rivalry of that game. Uh, so I really love that. Peter, you want to address that a little more if you want to? I, I mean, it, it just makes sense. You know, you mentioned ratings when you were talking about Colorado. I think it's all about ratings here, too. I mean, look, a lot of people have that Friday off. Everyone's got yeah. that Saturday off. And, you know, the challenge with that rivalry game is sometimes it's up against some other good games. Now, I'm going to watch the Civil War no matter what, but you're kind of missing out on some other stuff. So I think you're going to pull in maybe some of those more tangential fans that uh, are aware of the rivalry. They don't make maybe obsess and put it on the calendar every year. You're going to draw some of them. And not only that, John, barring something crazy happen, this is probably going to be a really good high-profile game. These are going to be a couple of good teams next year. Yeah, and they're going to be showcased on Friday, unopposed by anything else in the conference, as everybody else sits and watches. And, you know, if there are implications, 
you know, the Apple Cup comes the following day, that Saturday, the uh, November 25th. But, um, you know, Friday the 24th of November, you can pencil it in on your calendar now. Oregon and Oregon State are going to play in that game. Uh, something else that jumped out at me, uh, Utah. Utah's playing week one at home against Florida. And that game was originally noted as it could be on a Thursday or it could be on a Saturday. And the Utah fans, they want a tailgate. They want it on a Saturday. But Kyle Whittingham, the Utah coach, I'm told he wanted to play that game on Thursday. That game's going to get played on a Thursday in week one. So Utah will have all of the country watching you know, Utah against Florida on that Thursday. Uh, August 31st is the date of that game. And that is you know, a couple of days in front of the official start of week one. Uh, Arizona State also plays uh, against Southern Utah that same day, but nobody's going to be watching that game when you could be watching Utah and Florida. Peter, uh, you know, what else What else are you looking for tomorrow? What are you guys looking for tomorrow when the schedule comes out officially, or is it more just sort of seeing how it all pieces together? Yeah, I mean, that's it for me. I just want to kind of, you know, put everything together. I, I really wish, going back to that Civil War game, I wish both teams had their bye uh, right before it just to help everyone get healthy. But it, it's interesting, and I don't think it's an accident that you have Washington and Oregon with their buys, but I like to kind of get it all at once and really go week by week and look at the matchups and try to, and I'm not great at it, John, but I do like to kind of get a, a narrative in my head well before the season starts and then just see how it actually compares to reality. I do have a question for you, John. Uh, you talked about Arizona State and how they have a lot of home games. D- does this kind of remind you of the SEC model where Ole Miss, yes. seems like Ole Miss always go like 7-0 and and then they're in the top 10 and then they play Alabama, Georgia, uh, you know all these good teams, and then they end up being eight and four in the season, but they're still ranked the top twenty-five. Can Arizona State be that type of team where if Kenny Dillingham comes in, that offense is exploding? They have all these home games. Maybe they're six and one. Maybe they're five and one, and then they start playing some good Pac-12 teams. Do you think that's the that's the that's the strategy they went with? Yeah, I think they I think they are completely trying to set up some teams in the early part of the season to have some success that. You know, I don't want to call him a patsy, but the conference is better off if Kenny Dillingham starts like five and two in his first seven games, and Arizona State is flirting around with being ranked at you know twenty fourth or twenty third in the polls, and you know then then they play at Washington, at Utah, and Oregon at home after their bye week. So it's I think it's going to be interesting to kind of look at how that unfolds, but you know for Kenny Dillingham at Arizona State. The, the the deal here is he wants to be bowl eligible. And this gives him this kind of start, five home games in the first six games. The only really, uh, really tough game is USC at home. But, you know, I think they possibly could be 2-1 and one when they leave their three non-conference games. They play Oklahoma State. I'm not going to give them that one. And then they play USC. Maybe they're 2-2. Two and two. Then they go to Cal. they got a chance to win there. They could be 3-2. and two. Then they have Colorado at home. Who knows? They could be 4-2 and two to start the season. If they're 4-2 and two with six games to go, all of a sudden being bowl eligible isn't out of the question. Like, you know, they're going to have to beat somebody. They're going to have to beat Arizona. They're going to have to beat Washington State. They may have to beat somebody else to get bowl eligible. But, but it's, it's out there for them. It, it, it leaves some drama and intrigue. And if you front-load their schedule like Colorado is front-loaded, I think you knock them out right away because all of a sudden they're like two and four to start the season and everybody goes, oh, you can't be bowl eligible. So I think the conference is being mindful of this stuff. Um, you know, I'd be really curious to see 
who was among the eight votes that said yay and who were among the four who said no we want a different model schedule uh, another thing that popped up uh, you know people always complain Oregon fans complain if Washington gets a bye before their matchup Washington fans complain if the Oregon gets a bye before their matchup uh, the conference has given both teams a bye in front of their week seven game that they will play uh, at Husky Stadium so uh, Washington will get week six off. Oregon will get week six off. They'll play week seven at Husky Stadium. All right, I want you to leave it here. we got the BFT, Dale Scott, Major League Baseball umpires coming up. So much more to talk about. Tyson Alger, the I-5 corridor, will be along. And is Tristan Jabio really heading to Ohio State? More on that. Leave it here. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. We have so much to talk about, including the Dallas Cowboys kicker. I know you were watching, Stephen, because we were texting about this last night, but Cowboys kicker uh, Brent, Brett Maher, Missed four PATs in Dallas's win last night. Um, it was a kicking disaster. And Jerry Jones <laughs> looked beside himself. Um, he said they're going to read this as the week goes along. Uh, they won 31-14. Uh, by the way, bad beat if you had the over. It was 45-and-a-half was the over. Game ended up 31-14. Uh, That's 45 total points. So you were probably cursing the guy if you had the over in the game last night. But Jerry Jones says it's the number one thing they need to correct or the number one thing they need to address. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I just think uh, classic case. I think it's a case of a guy having a bad night. Like, he's a good kicker. It's a technical thing. But I think mentally we're watching a guy last night really struggle, and I think that was hard to watch for a lot of us. Uh, we'll talk about what the Cowboys should do about this later in the program. Uh, Dale Scott, uh, former Major League Baseball umpire, is going to be along next. Longtime crew chief, guy who's written a book. I want to ask him about robot umpires when it comes to balls and strikes. We'll talk about his book. We'll talk about the game of baseball, officiating. And I'll even ask him about the Cowboys kicker. You know, he's seen guys struggle in the field in baseball. Hell, Steve Sachs couldn't even throw the ball to first base back in the day. Dale Scott coming up next. Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I think our next guest can talk to us a lot about uh, a lot of different things. Uh, really interesting career as a former umpire in Major League Baseball who uh, worked in the game for 30-plus years, began umpiring at the age of 15, and has been a frequent guest on this show. He's uh, written a book. He has uh, you know, also done an audio book that is just out that goes along with it for people who are into audio books. Uh, he knows competition. He knows human nature. Man of the world, Dale Scott, joining us now. How are you? I'm good. Man of the world. I mean, wow, that's, that's a lot of pressure. Me. <laughs> well, you 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 worked as a radio, uh, you know, DJ at a top forty station in Eugene, Oregon, in the '70s. 
You know, and then you I go did. on. You know, yeah, I want to do some other things. You you went on to do other things. Some of us got stuck here. <laughs> well, that was you know when I went to umpire school, uh, I was thinking, well, you know, I'll I'll, I'll do this. I'll, I'll I'll come back to Eugene. I'll be getting uh, you know higher level games, and I'll go back to my radio job. That was I was going to be in radio all my life, and then I screwed it up and got uh, got a job out of out of, in the minor leagues. <laughs> I love it. Uh, let's. I want to talk about the book. I want to talk about you know, robot umpires, but can I start with just kind of asking you, like last night, the Dallas Cowboys Buccaneers game, we got a kicker out there that was really struggling to kick an extra point. It was painful to watch after a little while. You've seen this stuff in live competition on the baseball field. Like we watched Steve Sachs once upon a time and some other guys who couldn't throw the ball across the field for whatever reason or couldn't throw a strike. As an umpire, when you're watching something like that unfold in a professional setting, what is that like? It's 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 uncomfortable almost. Uh, to be honest with you, I once I once I had uh, Gary Dar uh, Gary Darling uh, Ron Darling, yep. uh, pitching uh, in Oakland, and it was like the I don't know fifth inning, fourth inning. He you know he was doing fine, and all of a sudden he could not find the strike zone. He he walked like he threw like twenty balls in a row. I mean it, he, he you know it was one of those things that defies you know why this happened because the guy's a good pitcher and he and he'd been pitching fine for a, a two or three four innings and then all of a sudden he couldn't he couldn't find the strikes on but it's unco- you know as an umpire you, i mean you want to call strikes i mean you, you know you're 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 thinking strikes but and the guy's all over all of a sudden can't hit it um and then of course they they, they throw one that's the closest of all the ones he's thrown but it's still you know still not yeah. a, a strike and everybody wants it you know so it's it's strange but yeah it, i felt for that guy last night just because uh you know, John. A lot of times, uh, you know, obviously, athletes, uh, umpires. We, a lot of times, we make this job look a lot easier than what it really is. Mm. And uh, you know, kicking a football, ah, he's just a kicker, you know. But yeah, say that when you need a kicker, you know. Um, right. And 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 so I, sometimes I think we uh, take for granted how easy it looks or how easy they make it look, and it's not necessarily that way. Yeah, my eight-year-old was watching the game with me. My eight-year-old daughter was watching the game with me, and she said. That's all he has to do, right? He just needs to kick it through. That's all he has to do. I said, yeah, with uh, 75,000 people screaming at him and all the pressure in the world, and all of a sudden, you know, maybe he misses one, then it's in his head a little bit. You've seen catchers and managers and, you know, even middle infielders that will come over and talk to the pitcher, try to settle them down. I've also seen umpires, you know, clean the plate sometimes, maybe to just stop the action for a little bit. You ever do that? Uh, yeah, you know, uh, 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 a lot of times, uh, well, I, more than that, I would I would clean the plate because I had I wanted to say something to the catcher without being obvious. <laughs> so, so uh, it might have been a uh, trying to clean some stuff up here a little bit, but um, um, yeah, you know, it, it, again, you, you, I, I've seen. I, I, I'm trying to remember the catcher's name. I want to say he played for Cleveland. I could be wrong. This is, you know, I've had a few concussions, yeah. but whatever. But I remember he had an issue. With throwing the, uh, you know, all of a sudden he, he was yeah. he would like double pump throwing it back to the pitcher. Uh, yes. If a guy's stealing, he would fire it down. But throwing it back to the pitcher, all of a sudden he had this mental uh, blockage or something, and it was Mackie really Sasser. Strange to see, you know. Was it Mackie Sasser? Uh, yeah, I think that, yeah, 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 yeah. And remember, uh, I, I think some one time when he went to throw, he double clutched and somebody stole a base off him, and yeah. after that he was yeah, worse. Yeah, Exactly, and you, and and last night with with that kicker, it seemed to me just just watching it that after he after he you know brutalized that first one, it was in his head, and all of a sudden yeah. he was uh, trying to overcompensate or or, or, or whatever. And and I I've, I've been in those situations. I've been in you know where I've 
I've uh, I've struggled a little bit on pitches, uh, and 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 almost the more I try to focus and okay, let's get this one, this one, you know, let's bear down or whatever. Uh, it, it was like sometimes it made it even worse because I was thinking more about bearing down than actually just relaxing and calling the pitch, like like I've done you know a zillion times before. So it, it's a it's a weird thing, but it can happen. Major League Baseball will experiment with having a, a system that is already in place, call balls and strikes for uh, some AAA games. Um, you know, whether they some of the AAA leagues will have a challenge available to them. Others will uh, have the uh, system call the balls and strikes. What was your reaction when you heard that? Well, it, I knew it was coming. I mean, I, I you know, this, this ABS system is, is going to be in the big leagues at some point. Uh, but I really, you know, half the, from what I understand, AAA will all will have the ABS, but only half of them will have a, a pure ABS where they call everything. It calls everything. And then the other half will have the challenge system where you let the plate umpire uh, do what he does, uh, call, the, call the game, and then the, each team has X amount of challenges. And, uh, you know, I, I, when I mention that to people, the first thing they do is roll their eyes, oh, my God, challenges, another delay. And, and, well, not, not, not like you think. Uh, they've done this in the lower minors. I think they did it in the Florida State League last year. And the challenges are very quick on these pitch challenges. Uh, it does not take – it's not like you got to call time and run over to the – uh, you know, and do all this other stuff. It, it, it happens very quickly. So, um, so I don't think it's going to be that much of a detriment. And I think that John is the best way to go because let me let me tell you about focusing and concentrating as a plate umpire on every single pitch of a game. That that in itself is is you know it's a mental thing, and and, and that's what you do. But if you're going to do that every single pitch of the game, never calling a pitch unless. There's some kind of a glitch in the system, and then the guy in the earpiece says, oh, it's yours, you know, and now you have to call it. Well, that's not that's just not fair to a, to a plate umpire because, you know, all of a sudden that glitch could be with the tie and run in the ninth inning. All of a sudden you, you haven't called a pitch for three and a half hours, and suddenly, uh, oh, that's yours. Oh, okay, you know, um, I, I just think that's really unfair to put a guy through that, and it doesn't make sense to me. I think the challenge system makes sense because you still let the umpire, plate umpire do what he does, uh, you still, you know, just kind of flow with the game. But when you do have however many they decide and how that all set is set up, uh, you know, you, then you can challenge a certain pitch. Now, you're going to have unintended circumstances. Uh, you know, let's say a runner's at first and second, less than two outs or three to two pitch, they're running on the pitch. Um, if a plate umpire calls, uh, you know, a, a ball four, and now, now they say challenge and strike three, and the runners are running, and, you know, ball four, they don't throw down. Now, uh, now you say, oh, it was strike three. Well, you know, that took a, a possibility of a catcher throwing out a runner or something. I mean, I, I'm not sure how it's all going to play out, just like the video replay had unintended consequences of a guy coming barely off a base and being tagged out when he was way safe. Um, it, this is going to have it also. But, uh, you know, it's the way the game's going with technology, and that's uh, kind of what, frankly, what the fans are demanding. Not, not everybody, but a lot of people are. You know, hitters and pitchers often keep a book on an umpire. So they know, hey, uh, so-and-so's behind the plate, uh, he'll call a low strike on me, or he's got a wide strike zone. Do you? Right. How do you think ABS changed that? In, and what I mean is the umpire's being graded. Uh, how, did it create a uniform strike zone? Did it take that away? What, what, what did that cause? Well, the ABS uh, system and, 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 you know, began about 2003 is when we – when we were getting evaluated, it wasn't, uh, you know, calling pitches, but our evaluation changed. It was electronically evaluated, and and it brought what it did, and it, it did what it was supposed to do. We we had gotten way wide, 
and way low, meaning the high pitch was anything above the belt was like a ball, and we were going way wide, and 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 it was just kind of a it involves into that where where the 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 practical strike zone that we were calling on the field didn't match up with the technical strike zone, the definition of a strike in in the book. So what they did is they they they, they tweaked the definition a little bit, and then they electronically were uh, we were being you know supervised and and, and uh, with this you know, system. And what it did, John, it did, it really did bring the strikes a much more uniform uh, and much more consistent league wide. You got to remember this was right after we had combined the, the national American league. So they wanted to have a more unified uh, strike zone. It, it, you know, it came to the point where we had, we're working all the teams. You wouldn't see teams that much. I mean, you would see them maybe if I, when I was in the American league, I would see teams, you know, several times because there were, there were only, you know, 12 teams or whatever. But uh, when you combine it, a lot of times, uh, you know, one year I didn't see the Reds at all. <laughs> I didn't see them at all in the road or home. Um, but uh, what they wanted to do is not only get the strike back to the book strike and, and, and more uh, unified that way, but they wanted more consistency league-wide with all the umpires uh, and with the American and National League, uh, you know, combining uh, with the umpires working their games. So, it did that. I think it took some pain for everybody to to you know figure it all out and what what was uh, going to be uh, you know the, the differences. I mean the, the Maddoxes weren't getting that outside stuff and uh, and uh, you know uh, some hitters weren't liking the, the fact that above the belt uh, you, were, you were calling strikes. But it did eventually. Everybody got on the same uh, uh, page and, and I think it did what it was supposed to do. Uh, as far as keeping a book on somebody. I think that you know guys may still do that to a point, but but uh, I think that is kind of antiquated now uh, with with this system that's much more unified. Dale Scott with us, uh, 33 years in the major leagues as an umpire. He retired. Uh, he has written a book. Uh, I believe it was out in May of last year. The umpire is out calling the game and living my true self. Uh, is that now out on audiobook, or when is the release for that? Yeah, I just finished the audio book. Uh, it will be released on February 28th, um, so that's when it will be available. It was uh, kind of fun doing that four days uh, recording um, down in Burbank, but uh, I'm excited about it. I, you know, my radio uh, background helped me with this for sure, and uh, they had they had me scheduled for five days. I, I got it done in four. <laughs> Uh, they had me go back for corrections a few weeks later, and it was about uh, there was like 15 minutes of you know it took about 15 minutes to correct it. So we got through it pretty pretty easily. So yeah, that? I'm excited. Yeah. It'll be out uh, February 28th. What is that like? Because I know you know you wrote the book with Rob Nyer, who we've had on the show. Much respect for him. And but when you sit down to um, you know it's your voice and it's like a personal conversation you're having with the reader. Yeah, yeah, you know, and 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 I. You know, they didn't want me, you know, very – I mean, some of these stories, uh, you know, I've been literally telling for decades. And, 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 and you know, I read it, you know, put it in writing and put it on a page uh, for the book. Um, but there are, at times, as I was saying, you know, re- retelling these stories, reading it, um, you know, I, I like, kind of like if I was just you and I talking, I was telling you a story, I, I kind of – Kind of laughed a little bit or something at the you know appropriate times. They didn't they didn't necessarily want that. They, you know they want you to keep pretty. You know they, they let you have throw in a little bit of personality into it, but they pretty much uh, stayed with the script. That being said, though, you're absolutely right. This was this was in my own voice and this was in my um, uh, you know the, the, my conversational tone or whatever the way the way that I talk. I, the one thing I that I that I learned though, John, is if I do another book. 
and it ends up being an audiobook. I'm, you know, with that in mind, I'm going to have a lot less um, Latin players' names in it because <laughs> 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 pronouncing those sometimes was a thrill. Uh, writing writing them down wasn't a problem. Now all of a sudden I have to pronounce them, but uh, but it was a fun experience and and an interesting one. You know, I've done uh, voiceovers, I've done thirty and sixty second spots, but to read a you know over ten hours of audio is is a kind of a different thing. What do you miss the umpiring? I I know you walked away from the game. You'd had some concussions and stuff, but maybe it was time. But do you miss it? Uh, you know, certain aspects I miss, it has really nothing to do with being on the field. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, uh, you know, some of the restaurants we got to go to and some of the people that I got to meet and, 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 and some of the perks of the job. But I'll be honest with you, uh, I, I don't, you know, I see these guys working their tails off out there. The social media, they're getting killed. Yeah. Uh, you, you have um, scorecard and stuff that are just wiping them out. That The worst thing that could happen for us was that on-screen strike zone, which is, uh, not 100% accurate, but it is the gospel for anyone watching, and I understand that because it's right, right there. But it's really, really um, brought the profession into you know a lot of negativity, and and uh, uh, you know the morale on the staff isn't the greatest. I'll be honest with you. They, the ten guys retired this past year. Um, there's a real changing of the guard uh, on the umpire ranks. A lot of senior guys, a lot of crew chiefs, a lot of guys names that you've heard time and time again over the years. Uh, are gone, and uh, it, I, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It's just that it, it's a it's a new breed of umpires, and 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 these guys have worked the ABS system, or, or meaning they've worked the uh, been evaluated with uh, uh, you know the electronic evaluations and stuff all through uh, the minor leagues and through fall ball and stuff. So they're 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 much you know when when we switched uh, and 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 had this electronic evaluations, the younger guys did much better than than guys like myself. I mean, I had already. You know, I was 20-some years into the game uh, when this all changed in the early 2000s. And, you know, it's an old old dog, new tricks, that type of stuff. Right. You know, there's a lot of adjustments going on uh, for everybody. Um, but uh, you have a new breed now, and, and I, to be honest with you, I don't, I, I don't miss the umpire, no. Yeah, and I, I think, too, about, like, we had Jim Joyce on last week, and he said that he didn't, you know, fully trust the ABS system because it would, it would miss breaking balls. It would miss occasionally yeah. – on a breaking ball, yeah. and he'd say, uh, you know, it's not 100% either. So I just wonder, I, I like the appeal part better than every ball and strike because I want to keep that, that umpire behind home plate engaged. Yeah, well, that's exactly right, and that's what I said earlier. If, if, if you're supposed to be engaged so at a drop of a hat you have to make a call, um, that takes a lot of focus and concentration to, to, to call the plate, you know, in a major league game. And, and if, if you're not going to have a call all the game, or you might have one at the weirdest, you know, who knows moment. That's just not really right. I, I don't think. And and I think the the uh, the appeal process is the best, or challenge process is, is the best way to go. Now, Jimmy's absolutely right, though. And, and a lot of people thought this with video replay, and now they're thinking it with ABS. Well, there'll be no more controversy. You know, they'll get everything right. There will be nothing will be wrong. And it's just that's just not the truth. I mean, we've seen on video replay there are angles. One says out. One says safe. One says catch. One says no catch. You you just can't tell 100%, and 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 that's why uh, you know that's why you need officials basically. But but uh, uh, the same thing is going to be with pitches. Um, you have you know a three-dimensional strike zone, and I'm just not sure if it's how accurate it's going to be on certain pitches on you know certain locations. I, I would love to see what it does with a, a knuckleball. <laughs> there you go. 
<laughs> uh, Dale, uh, the book, it's been well-received, as far as I can tell. How is the book doing? Are you happy with it? Yeah, I am. I've had The feedback has been phenomenal. Um, yeah, the reviews I've had have been great, but the feedback from from people that have gotten the book and read it has just been phenomenal that have contacted me. And uh, some are people I've known. Others are you know just uh, umpires around the country that, that uh, have contacted me, and uh, I, I'm really pleased with that. You know, I, I when I set out to do this, uh, obviously I wanted a, a very entertaining book. I wanted to describe uh, part of my personal uh, journey, which – uh, was unique for uh, many reasons, but uh, but I also uh, I, I wanted it to be funny. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I have a decent sense of humor. I like to make people laugh, and, and I think uh, I think the book I think I accomplished that. You know, because people have said it's, it's, it, there's some stories and stuff in there that they they really got a chuckle out of. So I, I'm pretty pleased with it. Well, I'm proud of you. I, I know a lot of people are the pride of Sheldon High School uh, down there in Eugene. But Dale, uh, keep it keep up the fight. The book's called The Umpire Is Out. I want you to check it out. If you uh, are an audiobook person, you'll get a kick out of listening to Dale Scott because now you know, I guess as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. <laughs> Dale Scott, thank you. Thanks, buddy. All right, there he is, former umpire. Peter Sampson, is he changing your mind? Steven, you know, where are we on this ABS system now? Balls and strikes. Where I, are, where's our minds? Yeah, I still support it, but, it, but again... The, since last week, it's always been with the caveat that it gets tested fully in the minors, and it is accurate. Again, you know, if it's missing, you know, 12-6 curveballs because it's the angle going in the zone, I mean, if it's not going to work, it's not going to work, and then I support the challenge system. So, again, if it's truly accurate with a very large sample size, I'm all for it. I, I, do, want, oh, I, do, I do agree yeah. that there needs to be umpires there for other calls, right? And, oh, so, yeah. and so the umps have to be engaged. So I do like the idea that they're bringing up of, you know, the challenge system where so it keeps the umps involved because that would be impossible to have just a, you know, a robot strike zone and then all of a sudden you need a you need a call from the ump like you can't have that. Uh so I do agree with that like they definitely need to have that involved. Yeah, uh, so if I'm 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 all for getting it right. And I don't like the interruption in the game, but we look at NFL, we've all sort of come to accept the challenge. And we've all, and I think in the NFL in particular, the game does move along at a pace which we can all live with when there's, you know, was he inbounds, was he out of bounds? And you've seen sort of the rapid review system in effect in the NFL and in some college games. Um, I'm, I don't mind a challenge, but I think if the umpires behind the plate can get 95% of the calls and you allow the, Opposing dugout to go, hey, you got three challenges a game. If you're correct, you don't lose your challenge. So, uh, you know, have at it. I think that system is one I can support because that home plate umpire is still going to be there. You still have the human element. You still have somebody in charge of the game. What I don't want is somebody standing back there, and all of a sudden there's a call, and that person is, you know, uh, you know, human, and fall asleep behind the home plate, behind home plate, so to speak, because. He knows someone else, uh, you know, the computer's going to call it. I just need to stand here. I'm looking for fair foul. I'm looking for out or safe. Uh, they've got the balls and strikes. I want that person engaged. I want their mind on it. What do you think? At John Canzano BFT, tweet at me. Our big splash is next. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. we got to talk about the NFL matchups. Divisional round of the playoffs is set after last night's uh, 
Cowboys-Buccaneers game. Just, uh, you know, my unscientific uh, opinion here. But um, I got the opinion last night or the impression that Tom Brady wasn't having a lot of fun. I'm sure that many of you picked that up as well. I don't know if it just had to do with Dallas's defense and maybe Brady was frustrated, but I couldn't help but kind of think that it was uh, quite possibly his last game or possibly his last game in Tampa. Um, Anna will probably say this when she pops into the studio a little bit later in the show, but she said in the living room as uh, he was walking off, she says he needs to he needs to hang it up. He's messing with his legacy now. Do you guys think he's messing with his legacy, or does he just look like, you know, he's not quite Tom Brady anymore? I think that he's lost it a little bit, but I do think that he still has some skills and he can help a team. I, I mentioned this yesterday. I don't think he's the savior to a team, but what I do think he is is maybe the missing piece to a team, right? Like a team that has all the offensive weapons, has really good talent. You bring Tom Brady in, and then that's when you become Super Bowl contender. So I don't think it hurts his legacy right now. Who is that, though? Is that the Raiders? Is that, you know, yeah. do the Niners do the Niners bring him in? Like That's a team he wants to play for. I think it's the Raiders. I think the Raiders have a lot of offensive talent, and they're ready for a winner down in Vegas. So all they got to do is add some defensive uh, personnel there. You get Brady in there with Hunter Renfro and Devontae Adams and Josh Jacobs. I think that team uh, is ready to contend. I also, though, think he is, He's you know, if he's uh, – I just think he's one of these people that's not going to walk away willingly. Like somebody's going to have to tell him there's no room for you, there's no room for you, and that's when he won't be able to play anymore. He's 45 years old and uh, playing a young man's game. And there were a couple of times in that second half last night where I was like, ooh, he's going to get hurt, man. He's gonna he's in trouble. Uh, Four o'clock hour's coming up. Punch it audio. Anna will stop in. Plus we'll talk about the NFL playoffs. Take a deep, deep dive on that. I want you to leave it here. You got the BFT statewide on the Bald Face Truth Radio Network. B-F-F-T From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland Presented by High Caliber Millwrights Here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth Well, this show's going on the road later in the week College basketball in the Pac-12 has been lights out I kind of want to see Arizona play uh, UCLA on Saturday in Tucson. I also want to see UCLA play Arizona State on Thursday night in Tempe. So this show will be live from Arizona on Friday as uh, we'll be on Arizona State's campus broadcasting on Friday and uh, headed into the weekend fresh off of the Thursday night game. Bobby Hurley will be on the show on Friday. Arizona State coach will will dive deeper on college basketball. Uh, look, I know it hasn't been a great season for Dana Altman in Oregon, but they beat Arizona and uh, looked pretty good doing it uh, over the weekend. Feels like so long ago. Saturday, big win over Arizona, and everybody in the Pac-12 saw it coming. Everybody's like, you know what? Oregon's been terrible. They haven't defended. They haven't been great. Of course they're going to beat Arizona at home. Uh, we'll find out later in the week. Uh, you know, I'm not sure on Arizona. You know, I'm not even sure on UCLA, to be honest. Uh, but Arizona State has played a lot better and has emerged as a contender in the Pac-12, despite a non-conference schedule that isn't very tough. They're making hay 
in the Pac-12. They will host Arizona. Or excuse me, they will host UCLA on Thursday night in Tempe. Late game Thursday night. Bobby Hurley will join us on Friday's show from Arizona State. Saturday, uh, I am likely to be in Tucson to see Arizona play UCLA. So, getting into college basketball, um, efforting also this week. I'd love to get Dana Altman on the show. Talk to the Oregon coach about his season. Uh, I would love uh, to get the guests that you want to hear from when it comes to college basketball on the show. So we'll do some of that, and we'll be on site uh, Friday from Tempe, Arizona, where Arizona State will be either fresh off of beating UCLA or will be uh, uh, reminded that they are not UCLA. That's going to happen on Thursday night, so uh, we'll keep you posted on that front. Anna will be popping into the studio here in the 4 o'clock hour. Uh, to uh, kick around whatever we kick around. But uh, before we do all that, let's play some Punch It Audio. we got a lot to catch up on. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Well, let's start a little bit with uh, the Chargers. Ian Rappaport uh, in uh, talking uh, 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 earlier in the week about Brandon Staley. Now Daniel Popper on the Dan Patrick Show. The, the athletics Daniel Popper, who covers the Chargers, says that Brandon Staley will stay with the Chargers. That's what he expects. Punch it. You know, there are a lot of owners out there who will make snap decisions who will have knee-jerk reactions, especially after something like this, um, who will fire Frank Reich and name Jeff Saturday head coach, a guy who's, you know, never been on a sideline as a head coach in his career. You know, there are owners out there who will do that. I don't think the Spanoses are those type of owners. They like to see things through. They like to give their coaches a full opportunity to, in Anthony Lynn's case, turn things around, in Brandon Staley's case, to keep things building. And I think, like, in this case, they are building to something. And I know this this feels like a huge step back because you blow a 27 and nothing lead on national television. But talking to these players over the last couple of days, they feel like they are building something here. And they feel like if you move on from Brandon Staley, and especially defensively, you have to start over from step one. Like that is a daunting task for these guys because they just felt like over this down the stretch of this season that they had started to really come into their own in this scheme figure out their roles in this scheme and start to play defensively the way that they felt like they were capable of. Look, uh, the Spanos family has owned the Chargers in one form or fashion since 1984 when Alex Spanos bought the team. His son, Dean, took over operations uh, in 94, then passed the operations to his own sons in 2015. Um, There are four Spanos kids who now own and operate the Chargers. I don't know if the Chargers are the best... Like, is ownership of the Chargers the best, you know, the best resource that the Chargers should be trusting here on this front? Like, you know, hey, there are some owners that that would step in. You know, the Chargers just aren't that way. I would I would encourage people to look at the track record of the Chargers organization. Tell me, do you have confidence that the Spanos family can fix this? I didn't like what I saw. I didn't like what I saw from Brandon Staley. I felt bad for Justin Herbert over the weekend. I know you guys talked about this yesterday, but... I feel like if Justin Herbert doesn't get an offensive-minded coach that can really help him on the offensive side of the ball, that we're going to end up talking about 
the regrets of Justin Herbert's pro career the way that we talk about the regrets of his college career. He never had a coach. He didn't have a coach for more than one season at Oregon that had an offensive mind that could free him to do the things that he was he's capable of doing. And I feel like we're watching a little bit of a repeat of that with the Chargers in Brandon Staley. The one question uh, I have for you, Don, yeah. do you worry about the changing of all the coaches? Because, yeah, Anthony Lynn, and if they fired Brandon Staley, that's three coaches in, what, four years for Justin Herbert? Do you worry about that at all? That happens with teams that are drafting high. I mean, it means they haven't had any success. It means they prob- the ownership probably doesn't have a clue. And, you know, it, it, it's no secret that the same teams – tend to appear at the top of the NFL draft over and over and over again. And part of it is, I think, you know, they have all the same money to spend. They have, uh, you know, a hard salary cap. Everything's supposed to be equal. But part of it is that they're just bad ownership groups and they have no momentum and no continuity. So, yeah, it's the same thing that plagued Justin Herbert in college when, you know, he went from Mark Helfrich to Willie Taggart to Mario Cristobal and two offensive coordinators. He, there's no continuity. It's the same thing that plagued Marcus Mariota in Tennessee. No continuity. I just worry that Staley's not the guy. And that's my concern with what I saw. You know, you guys, I think, justifiably so, called him out. You know, final week of the regular season, he played all those guys. You lose Mike Williams. Like, you know, and then the Chargers come out and blow a 27-0 lead. Like, you know, I heard Rex Ryan go after Brandon Staley, said, you know, he wasn't ready for that job, and now we're, we're seeing this. Um... I'm I'm more concerned that Justin Herbert's never going to find a coach that lets him do what he can do. I think that would be the big regret. Tom Brady and the Buccaneers lose to the Dallas Cowboys 31-14 last night. NFL wild card round concluded. Here's Brady afterwards. Listen carefully. Is he coming back? Is he done? Punch it. I just want to say thank you guys for everything this year. I really appreciate all your effort, and I know it's hard for you guys too. It's hard for us players to make it through, and you guys got a tough job, and I appreciate all that you guys do to cover us and everyone who watches and is a big fan of the sport. We're very grateful for everyone's support, and, um, you know, hopefully, um, you know, I love this organization. It's a great place to be, and thank you, everybody, for welcoming me, all you regulars, and um, just very grateful for the respect, and I and, uh, hope I gave the same thing back to you guys. So thank you very much. Appreciate but it. Tom, Tom Brady, age 45, gets it. I mean, look, that little nugget right there manages the media in a way that, you know, makes everybody not so, feel so bad about, you know, hey, Tom's only going to talk to you on Tuesdays and then on game day and only for eight minutes. And, you know, I think he gets it. He flat gets it. I think he's a professional. I think he's smart. Uh, that's not what's in question here. What's in question is how much does he have left in the tank at age 45? And it, I feel like it's the same question we were having when he left the Patriots. Uh, Ian Rappaport on the Pat McAfee Show talking about the teams that may be interested in Brady. Listen to this list. Punch it. I'm sure he does not want to go out like that. And I'm sure that right now there's a point of like, all right, this should not have ended this way. The problem that, and I think about this all the time with guys who retire, it almost never ends well. Like, football is awesome, and I love it, but the not great part of it is usually, like, you don't go out in your own terms. You go out when football tells you it's time, and I'm not saying it's time for Brady. I'm just saying he wouldn't be the first to go out when, like, he kind of wishes he could play a little more. 
Did you guys see the clip of him sort of like saying goodbye to the Tampa Bay media corps last night? He said like, it was like, hopefully, dot, 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 and then he corrected himself. And like, the problem is, it, was he saying goodbye just to that media group? You know, I, I know there's going to be, I know there's going to be interest elsewhere. Like the Raiders we've talked about, I think that's real. The Titans okay. would be interesting. The Jets would be interesting. Um, it's probably only going to be for one year. Um, but then here's the other thing. Let's say that the Bucks make some changes on their offensive staff. I think certainly that's a possibility. Does that make it more likely or less likely for Brady to stay? I know cap-wise for the Bucks, it helps dramatically to keep him. Look, I, I just think Tom Brady is going to be one of these players that is not going to easily walk away. It's evident. You know, he tried already. He came back. I think he will continue to play as long as there is somebody willing to sign him and play him. I do think uh, I cringe at some of like the Jets and stuff. That doesn't make any sense to me. I, I think the Raiders are probably a more likely destination. I know he has expressed interest. He grew up a 49er fan. I don't know if I want to see him. I, and I think the Niners can do better at that position. And yet here we were on Monday night. If you were watching that game, you know, I even heard, you know, the broadcasters on Monday Night Football, you know, here's here's a uh, Dallas lead of 24 to zip. And you got Joe Buck saying, if anybody can bring anybody back, it's Tom Brady. And like nobody was tuning out because there was part of you that had seen it before. You saw it in a Super Bowl against the Falcons uh, that Tom Brady could do that kind of thing. Chauncey Billups, Blazers coach. Um, you know, the Blazers are healthier. Aside from Justice Winslow, they they pretty much have everybody available. Chauncey Billups talked about what an advantage that is. Punch it. I just feel like, you know, the way we're playing um, with each other on both sides of the, of the ball is, is more than anything uh, centers us, you know, more than anything. And, uh, you know, being able to get away from teams and sit our guys at, at the end. I mean, we've been playing our starters, obviously, a lot of minutes over the last, you know, stretch. But now we're getting a lot healthier. And uh, I don't have to lean on them as much, you know. So being healthier helps. Blazers coming off back-to-back uh, -back wins against the Dallas Mavericks. They've won two straight. Now just one game under 500. Uh, have climbed back into the 10 spot. Fool's gold, guys, or they figured something out? I mean, anytime you beat the Mavericks, who are a good team, uh, back, beat a back-to-back, -back, I think that's something positive. Now the second game, Luka Doncic did not play, uh, so there is that little caveat. I'm not ready to buy fully back in because I do want to see everyone healthy and playing well together for you know a, a certain amount of time. But I do think Chauncey's right that he now can go to his bench a little bit more, but that bench is still a problem. So I, for that reason, I would still say a little fool's gold uh, until they upgrade that bench. Nuggets say that Mike Malone has entered the league's health and safety protocols. That could be a positive COVID test. He will not be on the sideline tonight uh, as the Trailblazers play the Nuggets. David Adelman, uh, son of Rick Adelman, Portland kid, will fill in tonight against Portland, according to the team. Nuggets are 30-13. and 13. They've won six straight. Peter Sampson, Blazers, Nuggets. How do you see that one? 
Uh, I see a fun battle between Yusuf Nurkic and Nikola Jokic. They always go head-to-head really well. I mean, Jokic is playing on a whole different level. But, I mean, it depends on which Blazers team we see. I'm with Steven where, look, two games is way too soon to get excited about this team again. But they looked how they did at the beginning of the year. Defensively, the the connectedness, you know, it it helps having single-digit turnovers. Having more than three points off the bench. I certainly expect Denver to win this game, but if Portland keeps it going, it should be entertaining anyway. That's Punch It Audio. It's the best sound from all around. Anna's going to pop into the studio. Uh, we'll catch you up on everything going on in sports, everything you need to know, plus a whole bunch of nonsense you don't need to know, but we're going to tell you anyway. Leave it here. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald Face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Anna has popped into the studio. She is uh, she's going to talk to us a little bit about Tom Brady. You you made some comments about Tom Brady last night during the broadcast. We're watching Monday Night Football. We're watching him in the playoffs. Your headset's all a mess. Look at that. You got a bun on top of your head today, so your headset doesn't fit quite right. I'm just there's yeah. little there's little hair fibers on the microphone, and I can see them in my lower peripheral yeah. vision. So I'm doing everything I can to ignore that. They're not or- mine. Just try to pick them off. I know they're not yours. <laughs> you the know, bright side. It's like having a fly in your in a small space. It's yeah. like that. Yeah. You know. It's pretty distracting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know. I'm at my best today, as you can yeah. tell. Yeah. My thing is, I always tell people this. Like people say, you know, you know, when I'm writing, yeah, I get into kind of a deep trance while I'm writing. Oh, I know. And if somebody walks by, I can't see them. If I'm in a stadium, I don't really hear the noise. Yeah. It kind of goes silent in a white noise kind of way. Yeah. But if somebody is crinkling a wrapper, like in the room, uh-huh. like that little sound, I can't unhear it. <laughs> and it's kind of like you, like, you know, everything can be, you know, you're in, you're on the fly here in a studio, but you're saying there's a little hair on yeah. your microphone? Uh-huh. It's gone now. Yeah. I think I got it. You got it. But I'm like cross-eyed looking down trying to get it. It's quite I a scene, fellas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Quite yeah, a scene. Yeah, riveting, isn't it? Yep. Glad you tuned in today. Um, <laughs> all right, let's. Uh, Tom Brady last night. You were making a comment, like the Cowboys were sacking him and sacking him. And, oh you know, yeah. Hey, he threw that interception. Yeah. His first since yeah. 2019. Well, look at me in the, in the playoffs. I don't know. That's something. It's, it's not his on, first on, interception since 2019. I, somebody's thrown lots of interceptions. Maybe a playoff interception. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> this is my world, people. But I said it with such conviction. Probably red zone interception. Yeah. First since 2019. Yeah, that maybe. sounds right. Maybe. That sounds I don't right. know. Yeah, first yeah. red zone interception since 2019. I just looked uh, it up. Okay. I'm teaming in on that one. Not his first. Oh, I thought it was just his first interception since 2019. I thought, wow. Yeah, that would be pretty remarkable. That's a bad night. That would be. Well, <laughs> speaking of bad nights, how about the kicker for the Cowboys? Oh, my gosh. I mean, at first it was kind of comical. Like, how many is he going to miss? And then you just start to feel bad for the guy. I jeered. I, I kind of smirked at the first one. Yeah. The second one I went, oh. The third one I felt really bad for uh-huh. him. Yeah. You know, and I... Because we've all, like, I think that's a very relatable thing. Like, you know, we've all been under the kind of pressure where something very simple that we do all the time, we suddenly can't perform <laughs> if people are really watching and you're pressing. 
Yeah. You know? Uh-huh. What is that, anyway? Well, I think it's just the, it's, yeah, I think it's, he got in his head a little bit. Yeah. And and with kicking, everything is so, you know, there's timing to it, there's a rhythm to it, there's mechanics to it. It's a lot like pitching. And Dale Scott, the uh, former umpire, talked about this earlier. Like, you know, you get a pitcher who has got great control, all of a sudden struggles to throw strikes and then starts to press, then really can't throw strikes. Yeah. And I heard Oral Hershiser talk about this once, the longtime Dodgers pitcher. He, he had excellent control. Mm-hmm. Excellent control. Very cerebral guy. He said when he struggled with control, like if he was in the bullpen, he realized, I don't have it today. He would uh, go with what he called chance deviance theory. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Meaning, I know I don't have control, so I am going to throw the ball down the middle of the plate. And he knew that even if he was trying to throw it down the middle of the plate, because he didn't have control, he'd miss six inches right, six inches left, he'd be right on the corners. <laughs> yeah. So he said if he didn't have his good stuff, he often would go just pipe one right down the middle. Yeah. And he said most of the time the ball would end up on the corners because he just didn't have control that I day. I use that same strategy in bowling. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Chance. Just throw it around the middle. Deviation theory. Yeah. yeah. Whatever you said. That yeah. fancy term for it. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Just down the middle. Do if you it think... lands in the gutter, it lands in the gutter. So the Cowboys don't have a lot of time here to, like, work out a new kicker. Yeah. And this guy had a great season. Yeah. So what do you do if you're his teammate? What do you do if you're his team? Mm-hmm. Steven, Peter, Anna, what do you do if you're the Dallas Cowboys? You're going to San Francisco. This game going to come down to a field goal? Oof. Can you trust that guy to put him out there? I kind of think that's why I cringed when Mike McCarthy didn't let him kick a field goal. I know. Late in the game. He let him have an extra point later, and he got yeah. it, and it was a big relief. Yeah. But I kind of thought, hey, there, the game was out of hand. Mm-hmm. There's a real chance there for Maher to get a made field goal and feel better about himself, and McCarthy didn't give him that opportunity. I kind of cr- I thought yeah. that was bad coaching. That was unfortunate because with sports psychology, that is going to be in his head. What do you guys think? What do the Cowboys do here? They just ride this out and say, hey, he'll correct, he'll be okay. But every extra point, if they get in the end zone, is going to come with some pressure. I kind of think that you got to get him out of there, right? I, I really do think that. And the Cowboys, they're in a position where you know they're a really good team, and you can't have four missed extra points in a game when you're playing the 49ers on the road. Like, against the Buccaneers, you're a better team, yeah, that's fine. But when you're on the road, you're taking on you know the Eagles or the 49ers or in the Super Bowl. You can't be having that second thought. I, I kind of think you have to get him out of there, even though you had he had a great year. Like you got to get someone else in there because you, I you know if you're a Cowboy fan, I couldn't trust him. I yeah. just don't know if there's any time. Like, yeah, that, that, you know, you, if there's, you're kicker, the, there's kickers just yeah. laying around, right? Like you can just go pick one <laughs> off the corner. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Isn't there uh, like a Zendejas laying around in his living room? Chromatica still, still out there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what would you do, Peter? Uh, I I don't know, man. I'd set him up with the team uh, sports psychologist and uh, try to get a few meetings in. And I I don't even know. Look, we all saw a dude get the yips on national TV, and it's terrible. But look, that last one that he made, I think, is a huge, yeah. huge deal. If he had gone 0 for 5 and not been given the opportunity for the field goal, I think you've got a major problem. Frankly, you still might have a major problem. Just the fact that he got one through, I think, is a great sign. So, yeah, you know, meet with the team doctor the, or the team psychologist. Get your head right. Get lots of sleep. You're good. I think if you are uh, a Cowboys teammate, you know this is your guy. There's no good that can come 
from publicly talking about, you know, oh, we couldn't count on him, we, we're not sure about him. I think that's why Jerry Jones, after the game, said, no, uh, we've, we've, he's made enough this year. We, we trust him. But I think the fact of the matter is it's just too difficult on, like, you know, you got three days to prep, and then really it's about packing up, game planning, and going to San Francisco or going to Santa Clara to play the Niners. So I think um, there's no option here. Your only option is to try to get this guy's confidence built back up. Get him with the psychologist. Get him working on mechanics. Get him in pressure situations in practice. Let him kick some through. But I, I thought, you know, look, and I covered, and I hate, like, bringing this up i bring this up too much i think like in 1998 i covered bobby knight in indiana basketball Mm -hmm. one of the things i saw knight do better than any coach that i've ever seen since or before was he would take a meaningless situation and he would somehow find a way to assign value to it and i thought mike mccarthy had a chance last night in the second half of the game it was clear the cowboys were going to win the game they're driving they got a fourth down. They're in field goal range. The Maher went to go on the field. He walked out onto the field, and McCarthy went, nope, we're going for it on fourth and six. I thought that was a blow-it moment for Mike McCarthy and the Cowboys mm-hmm. because I saw Bobby Knight one time. He had a freshman named Kirk Haston who played in the NBA. He was a center. He was a freshman on the team that I was covering. I was a beat reporter. I'm covering this team. They're playing a meaningless game against Indiana State in the early part of the season. Indiana's blowing out Indiana State. It's fourth quarter. And Indiana State got called for a technical foul. And so Indiana had a chance to choose who would shoot it. Mm -hmm. Knight did not take his best foul shooter. He took Kirk Haston, the freshman big guy, 6'10", 6'11". He shouted at him in the huddle where everyone could hear it. He said, you need to make this free throw. He just made a big scene about it, put a bunch of pressure on the kid. Like everybody was at the game, kind of stopped what we were doing on press row. We were like, why is he yelling? Mm -hmm. He's yelling at Haston. Haston goes out. He's got to shoot these um, these technical fouls with like a, you know the the entire arena silent and watching him. It was a high pressure situation. And after the game, you know, I said, "Why did you do that to the kid? Why did you put him in that situation?" And he said, "There was you know it was the only value that we could get out of being up by 30 at that point of the game was like." Kirk Haston got to shoot a free throw in a pressure situation in a mm. game that had no other meaning. You know, there was no other meaning. There was nothing going on. I thought Mike McCarthy blew it because I think, you know, people will say, well, what if he would have missed? Well, he already missed three extra points. Right. If he misses a, you know, medium to semi-medium long field goal, he misses a 40-something yard field goal, everyone's going to go, okay, you know, not, no har- nothing lost there. But if he makes that field goal, I think Mike McCarthy gives his guy some confidence. Hey, I believe in you even though you missed the three extra points. But how, I still got you. How much confidence is really going to be because it's not replicating any pressure. Like, the game was over at that point. So to make a meaningless field goal, is it really going to give Maher that much more confidence going into the next week? Like, I just don't, I don't think that it does. I think it was McCarthy going, hey, I believe in you still. Like there was a chance there to instill some confidence in the guy. I thought that was I thought it was a miss by my Mike McCarthy, but we'll see. Like, you know, he made the extra point. Everybody on the sideline kind of rolled their eyes, and you could see McCarthy <laughs> going about damn time on his headset, you know. But I remember, you know, Steve Sachs, and I don't know if you guys remember him at second base for the Dodgers. He threw away. You know, hit him a routine ground ball. He threw it away. Throwing air. He all of a sudden couldn't throw the ball to first base. Mm-hmm. Like, it was painful. 
to watch that, to watch a guy just mentally get in his own head yeah. in that way. And, you know, look, I played college baseball, and I played third base, and I can remember, you know, after you make a throwing error, that what are you trying to do? You're trying to aim it like a dart after that. Like, you know, I can't imagine being a big league player who has made that routine play over and over and over again a million times, and all of a sudden you can't do it. Yeah. And, you know, we've seen pitchers like, uh, you know, the Cardinals pitcher. Was it Rick Ankiel who, you know, couldn't throw a strike and – all of a sudden, they you know they move him to the outfield, you know, and say, okay, he can hit a little bit, and he's got a great arm. But I, I look, we all kind of laughed, or maybe you didn't laugh at Maher missing those extra points. Like uh, you know, as a Niner fan, it didn't pain me because I thought, <laughs> oh, this is going to loom large. But can the Cowboys, can the Cowboys reasonably go into this game, guys? Drive down the field in their opening possession, with the crowd going nuts at Levi Stadium. And go, hey, it's fourth and four. We got a 42-yard field goal here. Is Mike McCarthy going to send his kicker out there? He has to. He has to for the like, like you said, the first possession with the pressure on. And if he makes it, then you get the confidence back. If he misses it, I think at that point it's basically go for it on fourth down when you're down inside the, like the 40-yard line. So that's why I think he should have did it last night. But like, I, you, I, know, I, you weren't I, losing that game. I just don't think that it would have given him that much confidence if he makes it a meaningless field goal in that game. Like it just, there's no I pressure. Don't know. He looked happy with that extra point later. You know, like, <laughs> pressure's off. I can still do it. I know I, know I was happy it. he missed all the extra points. Had, had the under, so it's okay. <laughs> Steven had the under. He landed at 45. I mean, conversely, <laughs> the public vote of no confidence can be pretty damaging. Yeah. You know? Our eight-year-old. Yeah. She saw him miss, and she goes, what? Yeah. He missed? I know. And then he missed again. She, she was delighted. And then later, you heard her. She's in bed. It's past her bedtime. They're in the fourth <laughs> quarter. I hear her yell down, anything new? Anything happening in the game? And I'm like, it's all good. Game's over. We Go need these bed. games to end by like 8 p.m. Go by to bedtime. bed. That's it. All right. Uh, coming up, uh, we'll dive deeper on the playoffs. Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. the kickers who uh, missed extra points remember when uh, Oregon State's Alexis Serna Luke Rosa award winner missed some extra points against LSU remember they lost that game against LSU uh, who was coming off a national championship it can be done I remember Serna talking about maybe we should get him on the show I remember him talking about um, you know afterwards sort of the how, how he restored his confidence and got back to just kicking the ball through the uprights um uh, interesting uh, stuff going on in football, too, because, you know, we saw uh, Joey Bosa of the Chargers do something um, in the Chargers meltdown against the Jaguars that uh, cost his team in the heat of the moment. Bosa was uh, Bosa threw his helmet, spiked it as he was coming off the field. The officials threw a flag. Trevor Lawrence ended up half the distance to the goal line closer on a two-point play. Bosa talked about this. Uh, he's speaking about the referees here, but there's a larger question that is in play uh, that I want you to weigh in on. Here's Joey Bosa talking about his penalty at the end of the Chargers game. I need to be more accountable for my actions, obviously, but it's, uh, it's a heated game, and I'm hurting out there. I'm playing on half a leg. Um, I'm getting dragged to the ground, whatever. 
could hurt me, along with screwing our team. And yeah, um, maybe some of them weren't as blatant as I thought, but um, I don't know. It's uh, I think there just needs to be more accountability on... Uh, I mean, if I say something to them, I get a $40,000 fine, but if they blow a call that ruins an entire team's season, they get to... They're probably back in the locker room after the game, like, I got that Oh, yeah, got him. 15 yards, what a loser. I guarantee it, that's what they're talking like in the back. Um, whatever, power trip. Um, I'm sick of those people. I'm, I'm just about my third F-bomb so far. Sorry, but, man, oof. There's Joey Bosa of the Chargers. Um, needs to be more accountable. Uh, it needs a bar of soap as well, apparently. Uh, we also saw at the end of the regular season on that last uh, football game of the regular season, uh, uh, Quay Walker, who pushed the trainer for the Detroit Lions on the field and got ejected from the game, got flagged for uh, you know unsportsmanlike conduct for shoving the trainer. Um, heat of the moment. This is ha this is not new. But, Anna, you were on Facebook, and you saw something former NFL defensive back Alex Molden posted that speaks to exactly what Joey Bosa and Quay Walker are going through. They're on the field. They're gladiators. They're in the heat of the moment. Go ahead. Yeah, he said, uh, you know, he wanted to know, why do you think athletes make such emotional decisions, not mental or physical, in critical time frames in the biggest games of the year or season? He says that he's seen it, and he's been involved at every level of football, and it happens every year. Like, I, I think it's a really interesting question. Like, why why do athletes make these decisions like that? All right, so we, you know, like Joey Bosa knows that he shouldn't throw his helmet. He could get a penalty and hurt his team. Quay Walker knows he shouldn't be shoving the opposing team's trainer on the field. It's going to cost his team. It's going to cost him being able to stay in the game. And, and yet, in the heat of the moment, we see this stuff. And Dominican Sue, I can remember him, once upon a time on a Thanksgiving day, st he stomped on someone with his foot. And, you know, we all sort of debated the next Monday, a, you know, we, these players are paid to be violent. They're paid to go after the quarterback. They're paid to be this way. And then when they lose a little decorum, we all go, oh, look at them. They're not in control of their emotions. Like, I think there's some of that. Like, where is the boundary for a player who is out there going, I need to smash heads, smash heads, and then something doesn't go his way, then he's supposed to be reserved and in control of his emotions. I think it's such a contradiction. I think there's a fine line there, and I think it's really easy for players in the heat of the moment, in the heat of competition, to kind of blow a gasket. Yeah, I mean, for me, I think it has a lot to do with just, you know, literally, like physiologically, I'm not a doctor, but I feel like, you know, when your brain or your body is so flooded with uh, adrenaline or cortisol, like these hormones that actually like flood your brain, that that's what makes our actual emotions, I would think that it's really hard for any of us to, you know, make the right split second decision, especially if it's complicated. And it's why, you know, we celebrate that last minute shot at the buzzer that wins the game. Or we talk about how someone like, you know, Damian Lillard has ice in his veins and he's able to make that shot. Like it, because we realize 
given that same situation, most of us actually can't control our brain and body that well, and that's what makes superstars superstars. Yeah, and I mean, you know, I played small college basketball, and I, I've definitely lost my composure a few times where I remember one time uh, we were playing a top 10 team in the nation, and I had been playing really well going into the game, and I struggled the entire game, and I came off the court and I just booted a chair. Like, that was the hard, and that was the first time I've really ever lost my composure like that. And my coach kind of got at me. I got back at him. And then afterwards, you know, I composed myself. I apologized to the coach and all that kind of stuff. Like, it does happen. And I, in the moment, like, I don't necessarily blame him. But after the moment when he's in that press conference and he's talking to the media and he says, I need to hold, you know, hold myself accountable, but the refs, but this, but this, but this. He took no accountability for what he did. And so I do have a problem with that as the quote afterwards. But, like, in the moment, I understand why he threw his helmet. Like, I've struck out when I played baseball. I threw my helmet. Like, it does happen, but at the end, you have to hold yourself accountable, and Joey Bosa did not hold himself accountable at all after the moment just blamed everybody else. I mean, I also think sometimes when you look at the athletes that are um, amid that tantrum or whatever it is that is going on in the field, that, that thing that is out of character where they always go later, hey, that's not me, that's not who I am, um, It, you know, I think it's very relatable. Have we not all, like, been in the car, we're driving, the kids are squawking in the background, whatever, you're, you could feel that tension? Like, I can't even compare that to being in a field where 70,000 people are cheering, so much is at stake, uh, the guy across the line of scrimmage is trying to, uh, you know, drive you 50 yards backwards, um, something doesn't go your way, uh, you feel like you're getting a raw deal from the officials, like, I think that could be overwhelming in that moment, but yet... Most of the players, like 21 other players on the field with Bosa, did not throw their helmets at the end of that mm -hmm. play. Mm -hmm. Why him? I <laughs> guess it could have been any That's of the good them. question, right? Like, that's the million-dollar question. I wish we all knew that. I mean, maybe... Why not Justin Herbert? Why didn't Justin Herbert throw mm -hmm. his helmet? Why didn't, you know, why didn't Brandon Staley throw his headset? Because most of them probably, you know, a little more in control of themselves than Joey Bosa. But it also does speak to the importance of like practicing in a way that is amped, right? So practicing and practicing for that amount of pressure. You can never fully recreate the stakes, especially if you're in a playoff game or something like that. But um, I think it speaks to, you know, the coaches and their ability to have the team practice in a way that you know, at least tries to achieve that kind of pressure and intensity. I just can't imagine blowing a, a, a 27 nothing half time or lead in this game where, you know, you had to do so much wrong to lose that game. Yeah. And they did. Maybe, you know, and maybe it goes to the fact, you know, Joey Bosa is a really good player, an elite player, but the guys that have the discipline that can go through it and have mistakes and still come back and not show your emotion, maybe that's how you get become, you know, that Hall of Fame type of level player. Maybe Joey Bosa is not that level like, look at his brother, like Nick Bosa, and you as a 49er fan, John, if Nick Bosa got called for those penalties and they're losing the comeback, would he throw his helmet down or is he no. have a little more discipline? He's different. Yes. Yeah. He seems a little more in control of his emotions, even though he's, you know, he's, that's his brother out there. I, I also think, like, last night, something struck me too watching the Buccaneers game was Mike Evans caught a couple of big passes late in the game as the Buccaneers were just trying to drive and. You know, I don't know if anybody else noticed the expression on Evan's face. Like, he would catch a 15- or 20-yard pass. He'd get tackled. He got up. He was almost void of expression. He was not excited. He's too much of a veteran to be like, first down, we're down by, you know, four touchdowns. He just got up. He had a very melancholy look on his face. And I thought, gosh, what a professional 
that you can tell emotionally that he is detached from the outcome of this game. He knows they're not going to win, and yet he's still playing at a high level, but his he looked completely emotionally shut down on his facial expressions. And I thought it was kind of the opposite end of the spectrum to what we're talking about. Like, he's got all this cortisol. He's got all this adrenaline. Mm-hmm. He's got all, you know, he's you know, he's going through the motions on the field and catching passes and looks like he's, He's engaged, mm-hmm. but then his eyes and his face, not at all. A little dead like, in the eye. Looked like he was taking a nap. <laughs> and I thought, God, he's a pro. Like, that's a professional. It's funny because watching Tom Brady after he threw that interception, he, you know, mm-hmm. we talk to our kids all the time about resilience and being tough and overcoming mistakes. And when he went to the bench after that interception, he looked so sullen. Like, I sat there and I talked to the 8-year-old about it. I was like, look at Tom Brady right now. His head is down, and he's feeling it. And But what what should he do right now to try and rally his team and not bring the whole team down around what just happened? And I don't think he was the same. Like, there was just an emptiness but not in a good way is what I would think um, in how he played the rest of that game. I kind of wondered if he knew before the game, like, look, even if they beat the Cowboys, the Buccaneers are not getting by the 49ers. The 8-9 and nine Buccaneers, it's just been a really mediocre year for them. And, they, you know, they're in there against the Dallas Cowboys, who are a better team, and he got down. they got down to the one-yard line, and in a weird way, it kind of reminded me of, you know, Baltimore had uh, Cincinnati on the ropes. And they, you know, uh, you've got Tyler Huntley is trying to punch in the, you know, punctuation point, one-yard quarterback sneak. He reaches up with the ball, and the Bengals suddenly go 99 yards the other way. It had that feel to me that when Brady threw that interception, he knew they just can't do that if they were going to have any chance to win. And he knows that. He's been around. The, he's 140 years old. I mean, mm-hmm. he, he's been around the game. <laughs> For crying out loud, Tom Brady. Leave it here. You got the BFT. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. A lot of mysteries in the world. A whole bunch of mysteries. I'll give you an example of uh, something that I don't know why this happens, but it happens. Um, I don't really like, like, when I'm watching, I was watching the game last night. Cowboys are playing the Buccaneers. But it happened all weekend. I watched all the NFL games. And I don't like when the broadcasters, for whatever reason, they cut to that two shot where the broadcasters are in the booth or sometimes they're pretending to be in the booth and it's green screen behind them or whatnot. Like, I, I don't really understand why... They do that shot where they suddenly start talking about why I should be watching the game. Last night it was Joe Buck and Troy Aikman. They were saying, hey, Tom Brady, if anybody can bring him back, this is the thing. Uh, Over the weekend I was watching the 49er game, and the broadcasters said, oh, this is a game. The the stakes are so high. This is a playoff game. The loser's going to go home. And I'm like, I get it. Like maybe 10% of the audience doesn't understand they're watching a playoff game. That's one of the great mysteries of life. Like, why do the broadcasters think they treat us all like we're stupid? <laughs> I hope I never do that on this show. I hope that you tune in sometime and you feel lost. You're like, he's he's talking at me like, you know, I'm a genius all the time. I don't know. Like, why do they? That is how it should be. But why do the broadcasters in general 
go to the lowest common denominator. Yeah, and well, why did? And by the way, it makes them feel better. We were watching Celebrity <laughs> Jeopardy too. Here's another one. Okay, we're watching Celebrity Jeopardy. Apparently, this is all we did this weekend. Yeah, we watched just watch TV. Candace Parker's on it. Okay. Yeah. She's asked. The question was, and it was clearly UCLA was going to be the answer. It had to do with a Bruin. It had to do with the LA Coliseum. Uh, they used to bring a live bear. To the L.A. Coliseum. This school used to bring a live bear to the L.A. Coliseum <laughs> for its rivalry game, crosstown rivalry game with an opponent. Candace Parker, who's played major college basketball, WNBA star, person living in the world, spent some time in L.A., <laughs> says, what is the cow bears? <laughs> she like, got the animal, right? <laughs> I <laughs> guess. credit. What? Like, come on. I don't know. I've never been on Jeopardy. I can't imagine that kind of pressure. The pressure that's too much? Yeah. Oh, I, I think I would choke. I think most, again, most people right. would choke. Steven or Peter, do you have a mystery of the world that we can kick around? Anna, do you have a mystery of the world? <laughs> I do agree with you. The announcers, sometimes they make some really weird comments. Like, they'll, you know, I remember John Madden back in the day. He's like, oh, you know, you need to score more points than your opponent. Well, yeah, that's the point of sports. Like, you got to score more than your opponent. Or in basketball, it's like, oh, it's a lot easier if you make shots. Yeah, that, that yeah. it is a lot easier. They should just try to make every shot. I agree. Um, <laughs> I don't blame Candace Parker. I agree with Anna. I think it would be really hard to be up there on Jeopardy having to answer questions. I like, I mean, and, It's like the Miss America effect. Yeah, like, you know, you, just, get up. you just go blank. I mean, doing this job, I mean, I don't know if you've ever had this job. You are a professional and a true professional, and that is. But I've had plenty of moments where I just lose concentration. I have no idea what I was going to say, and I just blank. Hmm. I uh, Maybe you haven't done that. I don't know. I, no, I'm just. <laughs> it happened just now. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> I often. Poetry in motion. No, but, like, okay, like uh, Miss USA was asked about terrorism in 2015. If you were given 30 seconds to deliver a message to a global terrorist, what would you say? Uh, okay. If I was given 30 seconds to give a message to the global terrorist, is that what you said? Okay. Um, I would just say that, you know, I know as Miss USA, I can always spread a message of hope and love and peace. And so I would do my very best to spread that message to them and everyone else in the world. You did a pretty good job there with the terrorism question. <laughs> That's an impossible, like, again, in her defense, yeah. that is an impossible question. Yeah. Yeah. John, what would what you say would to the terrorists? I have no idea what I would say. What would you say I would give the them the wrong directions. <laughs> Hope they get lost. I don't know. That's I'd a say, ridiculous. You know what I would question. say if that person asked me that question? Yes. I'd say pass. <laughs> you have thirty All seconds right. to talk All to right. terrorists. Here's Miss South Carolina in two thousand seven. Okay. Recent polls have shown a fifth of Americans can't locate the U.S. on a world map. Why do you think this is? I personally believe that U.S. Americans are unable to do so because uh, some. People out there in our nation don't have maps, and uh, I believe that our ed education, like such as in South Africa and uh, the Iraq, everywhere like such as, and I believe that they should uh, 
our education over here in the U.S. should help the U.S. or should help South Africa and should help the Iraq and the Asian countries so we will be able to build up our future for our children. Thank you very much, South Thank Carolina. You. Thank you, South Carolina. <laughs> she threw the children in there. That got me. <laughs> the Iraq. The uh, Iraq. More Anna, you got a mystery of the world? We got like thirty seconds, but Yeah, yeah. my mystery of the world is uh you know, when you go to a Mexican restaurant, it, it's yeah. like one of the only restaurants you go where they bring out your entree, and it, they're, oh, it always comes with a warning of hot plate. <laughs> Why is the plate always scalding hot? Plate. hot? <laughs> Don't touch the plate. <laughs> and I, I'm like using my napkin or the utensils to move yeah. it into position. I wonder if the server at the uh, Mexican restaurant is at home and is like, don't touch the plates. <laughs> plate. Everything's hot. Everything's scalding hot. Uh, the 5 at 5 is coming up, such as the Iraq next. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. I was in college. Uh, I worked at a Mexican restaurant. Our plates were hot, too, Anna. And they were hot. They weren't hot, like, all the time. But when somebody got, like, you know, beans and rice on the side and maybe an enchilada, they would have cheese on it. They would put it under the warmer, and they would let, like, the plate and everything got mm-hmm. roasted to, like, 700 degrees. <laughs> Better served hot. You know? But yeah. you had to be careful. The worst was you go to the table, and you got a tray. And you're ready to set, you, you're grabbing the plate, and you're going to do a quick set down so yeah. you don't burn your hands. I don't have mom hands, okay? My mom can put her hands under scalding water. Nothing. Yeah, nothing. <laughs> nothing. Uh, and you reach for the plate, and just when you do that, the person you're going to set it in front of is adjusting something. And suddenly you're caught holding it for, like, even a two count. <laughs> you're talking about third-degree burns on your hands. Ouch. The end of that. But if you go to a Mexican restaurant and the plates aren't hot, I'm not trusting it. <laughs> you got questions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is this reputable? You're just, <laughs> just killing everything on that plate. Oh, we have burning questions. Do you have a burning question along those lines as a listener? 503-417-7575 is the number. Tyson Alger, the I-5 corridor, will be coming up at 518 to talk about. Uh, we're going to talk about the schedule coming out tomorrow, the Pac-12 schedule. But before we get to all that, we have uh, a, an installment we do every day at 5 o'clock. It's called The Five, Five at five, five, five. The Five at Five. Brought to you by Mercedes-Benz of Wilsonville. See more than 4,000 vehicles at Swickert.com. Okay, I'm going to take two things and I'm going to blend them into one. Let's start with the Tennessee Titans. They're hiring 49ers executive Rand Carthon as their general manager. This came out today. Titans are going to Hire Carthon, who is the director of player personnel for the 49ers, as the new GM in Tennessee. Now, he interviewed for the job last week, 15 years of experience. He's been uh, with the Niners for five seasons. The 49ers have been to the Super Bowl. They played in two NFC Championship games while he's been there. Uh, He was previously with the Rams and the Falcons and the Colts. The Niners are going to get a third-round pick in each of the next two drafts as part of the Rooney rule. Uh, which incentivizes teams to develop minority head coach and GM candidates. Now, 
The Titans fired their GM, John Robinson, in November. They're disappointed with the roster. Seven-game lose streak to finish the season. Seven and ten record. And so what do they do? They look over and go, who is good here? Who has had success? We're going to hire from them. I think the same thing happened uh, today with Baylor. Baylor was looking for a running backs coach. Where did they turn? They turned to one of the best running teams in college football, Oregon State. A.J. Stewart is being hired as the running backs coach at Baylor. Uh, Oregon State had him on their staff. He'd been around, uh, obviously, some great backs like B.J. Baylor. And Oregon State, uh, third rushing, third best rushing attack in the Pac-12, number 20 in the country, losing their running backs coach. Stewart was previously at BYU in Arizona. Uh, played at Kansas in his playing career, but A.J. Stewart leaving Oregon State, heading to Baylor. Again, Baylor went, we need a running backs coach. Who's good running the ball? They turn to Oregon State and start poaching. Hey, John, do you think that do you think that's a big effect on Oregon State's running game next year? No, because I think Jim Mahalchek, the offensive line coach and running game coordinator, is the biggest factor in coaching that offensive line. I think Brian Lindgren, Jonathan Smith have a great idea of what they want to do running the football. When you watch the 49ers, you watch Oregon State, they're running a lot of the same stuff. Jack Coletto came on this show and said that, and it became more evident as I watched these two teams play that this is a team that has figured out what identity they have, but I think the most important person in that equation is Jim Mahalchek, the offensive line coach and run game coordinator at Oregon State. But still, just like the 49ers, like you're not going to steal the 49ers GM, but you go after their personnel director and you offer him the GM job. You're not going to steal Mahalchek from Oregon State. You're going to grab A.J. Stewart and hope that he knows state secrets. This is what struggling programs do with success they look over and go yes i'll have some of that and it makes sense to me like you're not going to hire from a team that is struggling to run the ball you're not going to hire your gm from a team that has struggled to put together rosters so the titans and the baylor bears both doing the same thing here that's number one and a number two what is going on with john morant and all the drug testing so he's been playing very well for the grizzlies but he's saying that he's been tested six times this season and then walked into the arena and found out that he's subjected to another drug test today. He's been playing very well, averaging 27.5 points, 7.9 assists per game. And so these drug tests are supposed to be random, but a lot of players aren't buying that at all. Yeah, what do you guys think is going on with that? Anybody got a theory? Is it just random? Seventh drug test of the season. Days after that dunk, we posterized somebody. Yeah, you mentioned it. I think it was the dunk. It's just like Donovan Mitchell dropped 70 and then magically had to walk into a drug test the next day. You see this from time to time, and it is supposedly randomized, but it it feels like when something really notable happens, all of a sudden you got the Dixie Cup the next day. (laughs) Go ahead, Steve. I was going to say, it makes it so you continue talking about it, though, as well. Like. We wouldn't be talking about maybe the dunk from a couple days ago if he didn't get drug tested. So maybe the NBA does it on purpose just to continue us talking about it. Do you think the NBA does it because they know that the perception matters? I've never heard more about drug tests than I have this season. Like, I'd have to go back to, like, the, the jailblazer era mm-hmm. where we were talking about, you know, the league's drug testing policy, how it was a joke, and the players could circumvent it really easily. And now it's like... 
I think they're hyper focused on proving to people that the the, P, the PED problem that we see in the NFL and Major League Baseball is not in the NBA, or is the NBA trying to send a message to the players, going, "Hey, we're testing." Ah, uh, I don't think so. I don't think they're trying to send any message. I don't think they really care that much about a lot of the drugs, to be honest. <laughs> Well, I just don't feel like publicly there's a whole lot of uproar over whether NBA players are using performance-enhancing drugs. And, and here's the thing. Am I wrong? I don't know. No, but here's the thing. Like, the players can circumvent this. You know, if you read the collective bargaining agreement, the players, when they are presented with a test, they can take the test and pass it, and they're free, right? Mm-hmm. They can take the test and fail it. They fail it. They enter a. Uh, they can be penalized if it's a PED, but if it's a substance that is banned, they can enter a diversion program. Okay, mm-hmm. that is anonymous. Nobody knows they're in it. Or the player can say, "I'm not taking this test," and they voluntarily enter the program, so they never have a negative test. And you know, Damon Stoudemire told me once upon a time. He said, "You should never have a positive test. If you're going to test positive, you just raise your hand and say, I'm voluntarily entering the program.'" You never get suspended. You never get fined. Nothing. That's why I think the the league doesn't really want to have a problem. Mm-hmm. You know? I don't know. If I'm John Morant and Donovan Mitchell, I would stop talking about it. You know? Yeah. Number three in our five at five. Let's talk Aaron Rodgers. Last June, Packers quarterback said he definitely planned to finish his career with the Packers. Here we are eight months later, and he doesn't sound as sure. So uh, he made an appearance on the Pat McAfee show that went more than an hour. Said that he he thinks he can still play at a high level, whether it's for the Packers or another team. He says, I can win MVP in the right situation. Right situation? What is that? Like, the Packers uh, recently in the last week have said that they'd love to have him back. They've uh, offered him three years, $150 million last March. They, They said that certainly wasn't. You know, a one-year deal. Uh, They've had a bunch of conversations with him. But I just find it interesting that he is saying, I can win an MVP in the right situation. That's not what I want to hear. If I'm a team, I want to hear, I can lead a team to a Super Bowl. Like, we all know, like, Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers. I guess he's just trying to say, hey, I still got it. But isn't the bigger message for the right team I can be that missing piece. And, guys, let's let's face it. If you're the Raiders, Tom Brady or Aaron Rodgers, which one of those is a better fit? I think that it's Brady because uh, I think with it being in Vegas, I think Brady seems like more of a, you know, he's on his last hurrah there, and then they can build around it. I don't know. I think Brady, just for some reason, fits Vegas more than Aaron Rodgers does. I think Rodgers got a little more ability little little better, a little more ability. But I think you're right in that Brady kind of fits the city of Vegas. It's very transient. He's become transient. There's no quitters in Vegas. Tom Brady ain't quitting. You're going to have to be pulled away from the blackjack table by Gronk. Like, you know, he's not he's not walking away from the game. But I, I think of if, like, Devontae Adams is there, like, reuniting Aaron Rodgers with Adams is really interesting to me. And I, I actually think the Raiders could be better with Rodgers than Brady. Peter, you got a vote on that? I I think it I think it's Brady. I I mean Aaron Rodgers is so 
wishy-washy. At least you know Tom Brady, if he goes there, he's going to want to play. At least I feel that way. And it might just be my bias. Aaron Rodgers rubs me the wrong way. But I think if you're just talking... Yeah, but I think... I mean, Brady's a weirdo, too, in his own way. But I think if you're just talking for one year, add a couple defensive pieces, get a guy in there, I do think it's Brady. Anna, number four. I want to know more about why Aaron Rodgers... Well, he's cleansing, and he's like... He just looks... Like, you well, know. that's why it begs you, but I want to know what Peter. Thinks. He oh, Peter, why does Aaron Rodgers bother you? Uh, yeah, I mean, how can you how can you be cleansing all the time and be that greasy, bro? That's what I want to know. <laughs> cleanse, <laughs> cleanse the outside too. Grubby. I, I knew I had to be something good like that. Brady does fit Vegas, though. I could oh. see him at one of those oxygen places, getting yeah. an IV, mm-hmm. getting you know oxygen therapy on his skin, and then. You know, I just I don't see. I think I think Rogers has better ability right now at this point. But let's see. Anna, go four. Uh, okay, four. NASCAR making changes to the socks and underwear that its drivers have to wear. Thankfully, it has some new safety rule updates. So it says that different items like a head sock and helmet skirt and underwear and socks must be fire resistant otherwise they're going to be i don't know disqualified <laughs> they, they haven't specified how they are going to ensure that this is the case but it stands to reason that there's going to be some kind of check pre-race like hey is your underwear flame resistant you got your uh <laughs> flame resistant we all need flame resistant underwear is it up to code <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I guess this has uh, become quite the topic because from the Australian Grand Prix to the Miami Grand Prix this weekend, uh, racer Sebastian Vettel wore Puma underwear outside of his race suit, outside of the Mm, race suit before the first free practice, uh, just to make a point, like, why are you regulating what kind of underwear we don during the races? That's fantastic. Uh, The final fifth thing in our five at five how about this? Ohio State has added a transfer quarterback from the Pac-12. Tristan Jebbia, former Oregon State quarterback, planning to transfer to Ohio State. He's in the portal, seventh-year senior, grad transfer, eligible to play next fall, missed the entire 2021 season with that hamstring injury he sustained in the Civil War game. He uh, will land at Ohio State a day after C.J. Stroud uh Declared for the draft. Um, four scholarship quarterbacks on the roster. It's a strange one for me. Um, I never really viewed Jebbia as a guy that had like all that ability, all that talent, like Ohio State-level talent. But I think Ohio State probably likes the depth that he brings, that he's got seven years, and he adds something to the quarterback room. So Tristan Jebbia apparently on his way to Ohio, the Ohio State University. How about them apples? Wish him well. I want you to leave it here. Tyson Alger, I-5 corridor coming up. The Pac-12 is going to release their official schedule tomorrow. I've got some details at johnconzano.com if you want to see where the bye weeks will fall, where the Civil War football game will fall, the USC-Oregon game, and Oregon State's home opener in the Pac-12. It'll be against Utah on a Friday night. I've got all that info at johnconzano.com, but Tyson Alger's coming up next. We're going to kick around what it all means.
You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Our next guest does a hell of a job covering sports all along the I-5 corridor. Seattle all the way down to, uh, was that Baja down in California? Tyson Alger expanding the footprint, joining us now. How are you, man? Good man. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to get that passport updated if I really want to cover one of those Baja. Uh, what do they do down there? Some of those like buggy racing. Buggy I, I, racing. I think that'd be good corridor content. A lot of Chargers fans in that uh, San Diego area still in that corridor down there. <laughs> um, hey, speaking of the corridor, uh, the uh, the Pac-12 is going to release their football schedule officially tomorrow. We got a peek at some of the details. What are you eager to see when you when you get the schedule? Boy, that that week eleven is going to be one great for the Pac-12 with the the, the type of games you have that week with a USC at Oregon and then Utah traveling to Washington. I mean, like that's that's as good of exposure as you're going to get for four teams that are expected to contend for the Pac-12 title. But on the same time, at the same time too, like that's that's going to be the week that the, the Pac-12 narrows down to just a couple teams in contention, right? <laughs> like it's it's kind of the, the the same old story and dance here about the Pac-12 eating itself. And I, I, I think uh, you know, as uh, as anticipated as next year is, like it's like that's that's uh, you know, I, I expect College Game Day to be in Eugene uh, for for USC and Oregon, especially since it's been so many years since the, the Trojans have come up here, but. You know, between that and then, you know, uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, uh, Colorado and Dion coming uh, for the first game of uh, uh, first game of the Pac-12 season in Eugene, and and just I I want I want to see Dion in that auxiliary press room that they have right outside Austin Stadium, where it's you know it's maybe like four by five, <laughs> it's a couple, it's a couple, it's a couple folding chairs. You have to really like reach your reach your microphone around like the one speaker in there to even get a get a quote. Like it's. It's just so funny that there's so much of kind of razzle-dazzle and, and pizzazz around, like, his arrival to Colorado. And I just want to see him in the thick of a, a college football schedule where it's not all, you know, bright lights and, and big press conference rooms, you know. Yeah, yeah that's a great point because I think people who don't know, they see the very polished-looking University of Oregon post-game media, the uh, paneled wood, Dan Lanning uh, up on the stage, and – you know, leather seating for the uh, media members who are there, and it's movie theater-style seating. And then the visiting press thing, as Tyson mentioned, you go through the tunnel as you leave Autzen, you take a right-hand turn, and they literally have erected like a, I'm going to say it's about a 20 by 10 tent that looks like it could fly away. There's one speaker that's nowhere near the person speaking. So you can't simultaneously ask a question and then also re- hear the answer because you got to be by the, the speaker. Like, I, I've heard people complain about that. Do you think they do that on purpose? Do you think that's a psychological thing? I mean, it has to be a little bit, but also, you know, when you're when you're going through the budget and, and you spend 99% of what you have on putting Ferrari leather seating in a room that you barely use inside of uh, the Hatfield Dowling complex like the Ducks do, uh, may, maybe you're out of money for that. But it's, you know, I, I, I will say that Oregon is an outlier here. If, if, you, if you go up to Seattle, you know, that's uh, their, their uh, opposing press conference room is in like a utility room underneath the stadium. 
Um, I've definitely gotten lost looking for the one in Pullman because you have to go into a different building and go through the weight room. Yes. I remember one game in I remember one game in 2015. It was I, I got lost. I was on deadline. I ran into Royce Freeman, who was supposed to be talking, and he was lost. And so I figured, well, as long as I'm paired with Royce, like, they're not going to start until the running back gets there. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's always kind of one of those, like, fun, stressful, and, and unique things about, uh, uh, you know, covering the speed is, is just kind of the different places that they stick uh, the opposing media and, and press conferences. Yeah, in Seattle at, at Husky Stadium, you, you pretty much leave the stadium when you're leaving the press box, and then you have to come back into the stadium, and you're on a loading dock somewhere, and I feel like it's I'm in a CIA <laughs> movie or something. Uh, Tyson Aldridge, yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, and it is, and, and conceivably, it's never not pouring rain when you're looking for these things, too, yeah. right? Like you're, you're, it's, it's always the least ideal conditions to to, to get to these spots. <laughs> I'm going to throw something at you. Uh, USC, uh, per a source, is going to get a bye week in the final week of the conference season. I got a peek at the schedule. I saw it. USC is getting a bye week on. Uh, you know, what is essentially Thanksgiving weekend. They'll play UCLA on the 18th. They'll get a bye in front of the conference championship game. Now, it's being met. That news is being met around the conference by people who are going, hey, that's not going to be fair. USC is going to get an extra week off in preparation for the conference championship game. But I would argue, you know, as you look at the way the schedule unfolds, it is nine straight weeks that USC has to play between week four and week 13. They played nine straight games without a break. And that includes road games at Notre Dame, at Oregon. It includes home games with Utah and Washington in October and in November. Uh, I, is the bye week in week 13 an unfair advantage, or is it is it negated by the fact that USC is playing nine straight games? Nobody else is doing that. I, I think people are making a bigger deal out of this than it needs to be just because it's a trendy topic because obviously USC and UCLA are going to be leaving. So it's kind of like, oh, here the Pac-12 win again, like screwing itself over. And I am I agree with you. I think playing nine straight Pac-12 games in this year of the Pac-12, like that's a brutal schedule. Like I, you can look back at this last season when UCLA started. What did UCLA start, like 4-0, 5-0? But then they had to play that streak where it was like USC, Oregon, Washington, Utah. Like that, that's a gauntlet. And the Pac-12 isn't going to be or wasn't as good this year as it, or last year as it is going to be this year. And so, yeah, like I, I think if they can manage to to run the table and get to the conference championship game, obviously it would be nice to have that little bit of a buy beforehand. But I I would if you know I would rather have Oregon schedule where you do have a little bit of a recoup before going into a really big rivalry game with Washington. I, I think having kind of that, that mid-season break where you can kind of adjust and get healthy. And, you know, that's the thing is if, if USC suffers, like, a pretty major injury to an important position group, like, they're not going to have any time during the year to recover. Um, so, you know, I, I guess it's one of those things where if you're USC, you just kind of, like, you know, hope that you have the depth and, and talent advantage through your recruiting that it's, it's, that you'll be able to make it through those nine weeks. But especially with the way that that team's defense played all year, I, I I don't see them making it through that entire gauntlet uh, unscathed. I'm looking at the odds for the Heisman Trophy in 2023. It's awfully early, but Caleb Williams is uh, number two on the board at six to one. Uh, behind him in the Pac-12, you've got Bo Nix and Michael Penix Jr. both at 12 to one. Beyond that, DJ Uyunglele at Oregon State is 50 to one. 
You also have Cameron Rising at 80 to 1, Utah's quarterback. Uh, Where's the best money? Where's money well spent in your mind when you talk about Caleb Williams, Bo Nix, Michael Penix Jr., DJ at Oregon State, and Cam Rising at Utah, the quarterbacks? You know, I, I really like the combo of like Penix and Bo Nix. They're at, what would you say, 10 to 1? 12 to um, 1. Twelve. They're both 12 to 1. 12, 12 to 1. But my, my issues with those is, you know, Oregon is retooling its offensive line this year. So, you know, there's going to be a little bit of question mark there. Um, and then, you know, Penix, he, he led the nation in passing last year and didn't get a trip to New York. So I think that's going to be completely dependent on whether or not the Huskies are actually ready to, to kind of step onto the national stage and, and become, you know, the team that a lot of people up north up the, the highway uh, want them to be. But 50 to 1 for DJU and Corvallis, I, I, I would be willing to take a flyer on that. You know, I, I know things didn't work out for him at Clemson the way that, like, everyone expected. You know, I, I think – you know, this was a kid who coming out of St. John Bosco and down in uh, Southern California, it was, it, it wasn't a question that he was going to be like the next Cam Newton. I mean, they were basically already anointing this guy as, as a future number one pick. And, um, you know, I don't think he quite fit Clemson for, for the time that he was there. And I'm just, I, I know what Jonathan Smith was able to kind of milk out of an offense that had no quarterback this year. The fact that they're returning a lot of players on that defense. I mean, like all year this year, I was saying that Oregon State was probably like just even average quarterback play away from being in the Pac-12 title game. And DJU, with the right coaching, I think is can be far superior than just your average quarterback. I'm, I'm really excited to see what what Smith is able to do with a player of just that with that sort of athleticism because that that type of quarterback, that type of athlete, isn't the type that just ends up in Corvallis and. Yeah, I, you know, he, he got benched towards the end of last season, but I, I, I think that I think that was a little bit of an outlier. I'm, I'm pretty darn excited to see what he can do uh, down in Corvallis. Tyson Alger, you can find him at i5corridor.com, covering sports and other uh, topics along the corridor. Uh, two stories recently that you've written, um, Oregon's replacing one Williams for another. Bennett Williams, senior night, he goes out the door. Uh, you wrote about his his brother who is you know making mom happy by by going to Oregon. What's the connection with the with the Williams family in Oregon? Yeah, you know, so so Bennett ended up there uh, a couple of years ago. He was a transfer from Illinois, and, and that's really kind of where he he resurrected his career. Uh, I mean, if he didn't have the, uh, the the freak leg injury in, in 2021, you know, I, I think he you could make a case that he was Oregon's best defensive player the last two years and. Um, I know it's kind of scary if you're a Ducks fan to, to look at the team's defense last year and to lose your leading tackler and one of the guys who was actually consistent day in and day out. But, um, you know, bringing in, bringing in Evan, who was pretty darn good at Fresno, uh, before he had his own knee injury last year, that kind of knocked him out for a month. You know, he was probably he was probably well on his way to, to leaving and graduating and, and at least testing the waters of the NFL. and. And for Oregon to be able to kind of grab a player who is very familiar with Oregon, he, you know, he was in the stands for the Holiday Bowl, and he didn't quite know that those were going to be his teammates at the time. But um, he, he has certainly gotten the scouting report from from Bennett, and so I, I think you know they're not exactly the same player, but they play similar positions, and I, I think just being able to add some of those kind of plug and play types. Um, 
you know, I, I think you've got to take every transfer, especially this day and age, with a little bit of a grain of salt. You know, we <laughs> there's a tendency of any time that any player in the transfer portal ends up at another school, it's it's big breaking news, and, and everyone's quick to anoint, you know, this team as they're going to playoffs or bust. And, you know, there's always kind of a reason that somebody's in the portal. But, but I think that just the adjustment phase here is going to be a really smooth one for the Ducks for a, for a quality football player. Uh, you know, I'm thinking about Bucky Irving. You wrote about Bucky Irving, and you know, you're you're. Are you predicting 1,500 yards for the Oregon running back next season? Is that are you going on record with that? I, I'm I'm going on record with that. He he got just over a thousand yards this year, and that was with. Uh, so he was third. So, excuse me. He 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 was only getting like 12 to 15 carries per game, but he was averaging six, you know darn near seven yards per carry. And you know this was kind of something that I debated with all year because you did hear a lot of chatter of like, oh, he reminds me a little bit of Michael James. And you know obviously those that's a pretty uh, pretty big name to compare somebody to. But you know, I was talking to Oregon former Oregon running back coach Gary Campbell last week, and I kind of brought that up to him a little bit, just like, hey, you know this guy. This guy's got a little bit of wiggle out there. You know, he reminds me a little bit of a Michael, and, and Gary just kind of laughs. He's like, that kid's really good. And so I think if, if they're able to kind of feed him the ball, and that's something that Gary kind of said too, he's like, I would have I played him more. Uh, I think he's got the potential to put up a, put up probably Oregon's best rushing season since, you know, Royce Freeman's peak, if, if not kind of Kenyon Barner or Michael before him, because he's, he's, he just makes guys miss. And that's something that, you didn't see from like the CJ Burdell types uh, during his time at Oregon. I mean, Burdell could certainly break out and get, you know, multiple 200 plus yard games, but it seemed like he was on the, the injury report every other week just because he was taking a beating. Like, you know, Bucky can lower his shoulder, but just looking at some of the kind of the advanced stats as well, he had about, I think it was double the amount of forced missed tackles this year as, as any of, of uh, CJ Burdell's peak seasons and being able to have a, a complete off season, um, I, I think people forget that Bucky didn't get to Eugene, or Bucky didn't transfer to Oregon until after spring practice, and he, he came to came to Eugene to to join a depth chart that already had a lot of kind of commonly known names. You know, by by week two or week three, it was pretty clear that he was uh, far and away the best best player on there. And so he's obviously going to be competing for for carries with Noah Whittington and Jordan James and some of the other guys that they brought in. But I, I just get the feeling that this is going to be one of those years where where uh, you have a performance that people are going to remember for quite some time. Tyson Alger, I five corridor with us. Uh, looking across the Pac twelve, you've got a couple few things going on. Utah's the defending defending champion. USC's got the Heisman Trophy winner. Oregon's got Bo Nix back. Michael Penix Jr. is coming back at Washington. Oregon State uh, appears to be poised for a breakthrough. How will the Beavers respond to not being an underdog, though? That is a question. This is going to be a new a new role for Jonathan Smith's team. Yeah, that's going to be fascinating because I – I think Oregon State is going to be a dark horse playoff team next year because if you look at their their season from 2022, they lose to Washington by a field goal, they lose to USC by a field goal, and if you even look at that US or sorry the Utah game where they got blown out a bit, that was a game that they threw four interceptions. One of them was a pick six, and the other put uh, Utah in in the red zone right away. So I, I think if if you're able to get similar type of defensive play, um, I, I think they have that potential, and it's just. You know, I was worried about that team in 2022 because this Oregon State is never the team that is 
you know, dancing around uh, the, the signing day class in December and touting it out as, you know, this is one of our best ever. But it just seems like they add the right type of pieces. And for, for Oregon State to take the step forward that they did in 2022, you know, after kind of those baby steps uh, that Smith has, has kind of uh, led that program on, I just I just think they're very fundamentally sound. I think they're the only team in the conference that that ha- of those contenders, maybe outside of Utah, that has a defense that you can actually go into the season relying on. You know, I, I think obviously with the talent on some of the rosters, I mean, Oregon and USC and Washington, maybe they have higher ceilings, but those teams have huge question marks. Like the, the way that Oregon ended the season on defense, the way that USC ended the season on defense, like those teams can't get a whole lot better offensively than they did. And they need to fix. They need to fix a lot on that back end with Oregon State. Like I, like I said earlier, I think they were a quarterback a quarterback away from being in the Pac-12 title game last year, and they got their quarterback. So it's just going to be a matter of, you know, it, it's no longer than just kind of being the the the, the trap game, if, if you will. Like they're they're going to be circled on the schedule. People are going to be coming for them. But I, I think they're ready for that. What about a team of the ones I mentioned? If Washington, Utah, Oregon. USC, Oregon State, in your mind, most likely to take a step backwards? <sighs> That's the, you know, I'd, I'd be a little worried about Washington. You know, I, I want to see kind of just full range improvement from them just because their, their passing attack this year was as good as it can be. And I mean, you know, Washington had a great season. I'm not criticizing them by any means, but they, they won what was it, 11 games this year, Michael Penix threw for what felt like 3,000 or 30,000 yards. Like, like it was, it was very, very, very good, but you know, you know, we'll, we'll see how that can translate because you, you at the bare minimum have to repeat that and you have a lot of pressure. You have a lot of hype. I do like their coach a lot. I think the board is, um, I think he's a very consistent, I mean, what he did at Fresno and, 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 you know, what he did in one year after Jimmy Lake, I, I think that's great. But, um, you know, I, I have some worries about Oregon as well, too. Just that that defense was really rough down the stretch last year, and the offensive line was great for Oregon throughout the entire season, but you're graduating a lot of players from, from that line. Um, so, yeah, like I, I think Oregon and Washington are probably the most susceptible there because USC's defense was garbage last year, and that's obviously going to be the focus for Lincoln Riley, Lincoln Riley's team, especially when you're bringing back the Heisman Trophy winner and, and Caleb Williams. I kind of worry, you know, a lot went right for Washington down the stretch. And Utah, yep. Utah, I mean, they just played well when they needed to play well, but I you can see some you can see some cracks in in sort of the uh the empire there, but I still think Kyle Whittingham will pull them together. Um I think there's questions for USC, there's questions for Oregon. I think it's going to be a great season. Tyson, you've been all over it. Where can people find your work and and receive it every day? Yeah, if, if, if people want to just check it out, it's i-5corridor.com. Uh, they can follow me on Twitter at Tyson Alger. But, you know, it's just uh, it's, it's been really fun kind of creating this the last couple of years and, and being able to take what, what I hope is a unique approach on, on covering sports in this state and, and beyond and, and just trying to tell kind of good and quality stories that, you know, hopefully somebody reads and thinks that it was worth paying the couple bucks a month it cost to read. So. Um, yeah, I would, would be would be very grateful if people would be willing to check it out. And even if you don't want to fork over the money, we, we do have we do put out free stories on occasion as well too. So give, give it a check. There's a free trial. Um, 
yeah, and I definitely appreciate the signal boost, John. Yeah, hey, look, and I, I told you today I was I was uh, going back through some old emails, and I found a piece you wrote last, last March about Bruce Barnum, the Portland State coach, and you showing up for the first day of spring football, and, you know, I got lost in it. Like, I mean, it's really quality work, and I'm, I'm uh, uh, you know, there, I, I think there are fewer people out there that are dedicated, uh, as we've seen the downfall of newspapers over the years, and I just think you're doing great work. So I encourage people to check out i5corridor.com. Tyson, thank you. Hey, thanks so much, John. There he is, Tyson Alger. Which team is most likely to take a step back? 503-417-7575. You got the BFT. I'll give you my answer on that front, and I want yours next. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Stephen, are you watching? Uh, are you watching Last Chance You? I Netflix? Uh, I have watched it. Season two. Yeah. We just finished it last night. Really good. Yeah, really good. I got hooked on that. Um, have you guys watched Breakpoint at all? The Netflix uh, show about uh, who is it? Tennis now that they're uh, they're into now. I, I don't care what it is. I'll watch it if it has to do with sports, but. New series, Breakpoint, uh, Nadal, Rafael Nadal, French Open, all that stuff. Are you guys watching that at all? Uh, I have not watched that, no. I hear it's good. I just saw a scene during the commercial break of the uh, new Netflix series, Breakpoint. And it's in the run-up to the French Open. And he's uh, you know about to play in the final. And he's playing some player who looks uh, completely rattled in the hallway. is waiting to be called out onto the courts. And the doll is warming up, kind of. I don't know if he's necessarily trying to intimidate the player, but he's going through his routine in the hallway. And he's bouncing around like he does on the court. He, he's never still. He's swinging the racket. The other guy's trying to pretend like he doesn't see the doll like, nearby warming up. But it's like a 45-second clip. And I'll tweet it out. It's a 45-second clip. That basically summarizes like why Nadal is successful, and it got me thinking about athletes like Michael Phelps, um, athletes like Usain Bolt, athletes uh, that are at the top of those endurance sports or those individual sports, even Tiger Woods, who can intimidate simply with their routine. And Phelps, you know, Phelps was a, I think what Phelps did. You know, it got its due. Of course, Michael Phelps, you know, for winning all those medals in the Olympics and Nadal and all the success that he has had. But, um, you know, everybody, you know, Michael Phelps is the most decorated Olympian of all time. 28 medals, okay? All-time record for Olympic gold medals in individual events. Um, you know, the guy that just crushed it, obviously. But I also don't think, like, people realized at the time how great he was, even though we were all watching it. I, I was there. I was covering this stuff in Beijing. I was covering this stuff across, like, you know, the Olympics that I covered were kind of in his sweet spot. So I saw all this stuff. And even at the time, as great as it was, I didn't kind of grasp how great it was. And I'm wondering with, like, you know, this Netflix series on Rafael Nadal and tennis breakpoint, um, you know, they're talking about all the young players in the sport. But frankly, 
it's not the young players in the sport that are carrying the sport. It's Federer, it's Nadal, it's Djokovic, it's it's the old guys that are that are legends. And Michael Phelps in the pool and Usain Bolt on the track. And, you know, we're watching LeBron at like thirty eight years old go out and score like a young man. I don't know what's gotten into LeBron lately, but like what do you guys make of kind of the changing of the guard that we always see in sports? And and also keep in mind we're watching the NFL playoffs right now, where the oldest quarterback who's left in the playoffs is Dak Prescott. He's twenty nine. Patrick Mahomes is twenty seven. Josh Allen, Joe Burrow, twenty six. Like Daniel Jones, twenty five. The rest of these guys, Jalen Hurts, Trevor Lawrence, Brock Purdy. Brock Purdy's twenty three. Trevor Lawrence is twenty three. We just watched Stetson Bennett win a national championship, he's older than half these guys. Like, it's it's remarkable to me to see kind of the, the, the transition from old to young that we're kind of watching in the NFL a little bit. They're trying to sell it to us in tennis. It's not happening. We've seen it in the Olympics, and we're used to it in the Olympics. But what do you guys make of kind of what LeBron's doing and the, and the quarterbacks who are left in the NFL? There's Dak Prescott's the old guy. Yeah, and Serena in the women's tennis game as well. Like she's she's the most known and she's most popular. You know, she's retiring. You know, so the same thing. But like, I think in the NFL, um, it is interesting because, you know, besides Tom Brady, who is super duper old, like it was all pretty much young quarterbacks, right? Justin Herbert, young starting quarterback. Uh, whether you want to go with Tua or Skylar Thompson for the Dolphins, like young quarterback as well. I, maybe it's just football is becoming. And here's my thought is. There's a, you're expected to be better than ever before, especially as a quarterback, right? Like if you don't if you don't perform in a year or two, they're gonna move on from you. That's why I think it's really interesting. Daniel Jones got three full years of not making the playoffs, and the Giants still ran him back, and now he's a thriving in his fourth year. It seems to me, John, that like in the NFL, if you're a quarterback and you don't get in the playoffs by year two, year three at the most. Like you're done as a starting quarterback, and you have to re-earn your spot in the league. I do think I find it very interesting. And now, so there's so many young quarterbacks out there. If they don't make the playoffs, I think they're done. It's it's kind of changed, and I think you know a guy like Mahomes is going to get plenty of opportunities. Josh Allen, 26 years old, you forget how young he is. He and Joe Burrow are the same age, and uh, Dak Prescott being the old guy at 29. I didn't notice it really with Brock Purdy and the Niners until he took his helmet off after the game. They interviewed him, and I was like, oh, my gosh, he's like 15 years old. What is going on out there? But I kind of am looking at this, and then I was just kind of poking around that documentary because part of the documentary is they they basically are hyping up all the young players in the game. And they're, and they, and they're pointing out that the legends like Rafi Nadal are getting old. Roger Federer. These guys are aging out, you know. Uh, it's uh, it's 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 time for a uh, the young guys to take the guard. But from what I understand in this documentary, and I haven't seen the full thing, I've just seen scenes. The old guys are dominating. Nadal wins the French Open. Like it's it's still not their time. I just kind of am left thinking. Do you guys think it's an advantage? How much of an advantage does Dak Prescott have being 29, as he goes head to head with Brock Purdy, who's 23, and Daniel Jones and Jalen Hurts, by the way are matching up on the other side of the bracket in the NFC. They're 25 and 24. Trevor Lawrence, 23, against, you know, a, a Joe Burrow or uh, a Patrick Mahomes or a Josh Allen in the a- AFC title game in a couple of weeks. 
you know, there could be moments where the old guys sort of separate, or maybe it's just the more experienced players like Patrick Mahomes. Uh, you know, I just can't see Patrick Mahomes not in the Super Bowl. Yeah, I think it's more just like the reps of your experience, right? Like Dak Prescott at 29, yeah, he's been in the league the longest and he's the oldest, but he's only won two playoff games. So I think his experience is a little less. When you look at Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen, they've gotten to the AFC Championship game. Mahomes has obviously won a Super Bowl. I think their experience is a little bit uh, more beneficial than like a Dak Prescott. So, I, you know, it is interesting. I, I agree with you. I think, you know, for Patrick Mahomes, he's at that level where – if he doesn't make the Super Bowl, it's a disappointment every single season. And I think he's just on a different level. But, uh, you know, Brock Purdy, John, I don't know about you, but he seems like he's better than Jimmy Garoppolo. And yes. he's really giving the 49ers an actual legitimate chance to uh, win games. And, you know, he was the one factor I thought, okay, well, if the 49ers aren't going to do it, it's because of him. I don't know if I can doubt him anymore. I, I'm watching Brock Purdy and going, thinking the same thing. He's an upgrade in some ways over Jimmy Garoppolo. I still, though, am eager to see him perform against a defense like Dallas that is very opportunistic. They can be very good. We saw it against Tom Brady last night. And I I wonder if there's a game in which he steps back. But I say that knowing that the way the 49ers play, it's not all Brock Purdy. He's got Christian McCaffrey. He's got George Kittle. He's got Debo Samuel. They've got, you know, Mitchell in the backfield. They've got a lot of weapons. And, you know, he just he doesn't have to make every play. Uh, coming up top of the hour, Peter Sampson in the Pulse. We'll talk more about that. Plus, have we changed our Super Bowl picks? We'll go around the horn next. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Peter Sampson's got the polls coming up top of the hour right here on 750 The Game. Peter, what are you going to talk about? Yeah, we're going to look at the uh, divisional round here now that we know what the games are going to be. Do a uh, MLK weekend NBA wrap-up. And, man, i got to talk about this. Not that I think uh, Stetson Bennett is the guy in the NFL necessarily, but you would think a Heisman finalist who led his team to -to back-to-back national titles is a lock for the College Football Hall of Fame. He's ineligible because he's never been voted first-team All-American. What? It's a requirement. Wow, I didn't know that. Isn't that That's wild? That is wild. Uh, Got to get that change. Why would that be a requirement? Like you have to be a like you have to do something else. I guess you have to be a an All American to have been a great player. I I don't know. I mean, I think uh, I don't know. I think sometimes people overlook uh, success and overlook uh, greatness all the time. And I think it's okay to recognize it. By the way, the Baseball Hall of Fame vote will be made public tomorrow, along with the Pac-12 schedule. Um, really quick, guys. Uh, ten seconds or less. Have you changed? Did this last weekend change your Super Bowl pick? Uh, I had Cowboys Bills, and no, the Cowboys kicker situation does scare me a little bit. But uh, no. Uh, what I got a- Niners Chiefs? I still have that. Yeah, that isn't that what I had too. Niners Chiefs, I believe. I haven't seen Kansas City play. The Niners gave me no reason to doubt them. I I had a lot of questions. I had questions for Cincinnati. I had questions for Buffalo. Dallas looked okay to me. Uh, they looked fine. I, I haven't seen Philadelphia. My mind could change after this week, but right now I'm sticking with Niners Chiefs. Peter Sampson and the Pulse is coming up top of the hour. Leave it here for that. Grab a podcast of the show. We're back tomorrow with another great program.